Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cinematic Schematic, the official podcast of thecinematropolis.com, your home to thoughtful conversations on film. I'm your host, Caleb Masters, and today we're talking about a movie about an iconic creator who is wrestling with the unintended consequences of his creation on our society writ large. No, we're not going to be talking about Christopher Nolan's The Dark Knight. We are going to be talking about Oppenheimer. So we're going to start with an icebreaker question. We talk a little bit about our relationship with Christopher Nolan's films and what we like about them before jumping into a spoiler-free review and verdict on the film. And then we're going to wrap up the conversation with an in-depth spoiler discussion. Joining me, as always, we're not necessarily building a bomb. We are creating content, though. Uh, so I-, I did recruit the finest content creators of the land. Uh, most of all, my co-host and award-winning Oklahoma filmmaker, Laron Chapman. Ron, welcome back to the show. Always great to be here. You don't have a bomb under there, right? If I did, I'd have to detonate it. <laughs> <laughs> it's the this is like a good follow up to Mission Impossible. The yeah, conversation will self destruct. Kind of is. <laughs> also, very excited to be joined by first time, not necessarily first time guest, first time guest reviewer on the cinematic schematic. We're joined by Steven Tyler, you the founder of Mostly Harmless Media, owner of the Bunker Club, and also the Dead Center Film Festival director of technology. Steven, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me here. I'm excited to be on here as a reviewer and. Not just being interviewed. (laughs) Awesome. Well, so glad you could make it. And uh, last but certainly not least, very excited to be rejoined by a contributor at No Film School. She's also a contributor at the Cinematropolis and editor at Static Media, Joe Light. Joe, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to talk today about this movie. Likewise, earlier this year when you're like, everyone go see Oppenheimer, I was like, all right, so I need to ask (laughs) you to be on the review show. Yeah. uh, Support film. It's been exciting to see a lot of people in the theater again. So we're recording this on Sunday morning. So the box office numbers for the weekend should be coming out actually right about this exact time. I have the numbers from yesterday that we'll look at on the show. But it was looking like an overwhelming success for both Barbie and Oppenheimer. So good news. And eventizing it, too. Like people in, I mean, gear and pink and all kinds of different, you know, that's that's really cool to see because – we just haven't had that energy in a long time. So I saw cosplay at both Barbie and Oppenheimer mm-hmm. screenings. Both Wonderful. of them. Yes. Yeah. I, I, the guy had a pipe hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> All right, listeners. Well, hey, before we get into today's review conversation, I wanted to know if you enjoyed listening to the show and you want to help the podcast get discovered by more listeners like you, please make sure to head on over to your preferred podcast app and leave us a rating and a review, most specifically Apple and Spotify podcasts. It also ties into another thing. For Spotify listeners, uh, we have some polls going, audience polls that are running, begin running with this specific episode about which film did you like better, Barbie or Oppenheimer? And let me let me elaborate on that. We're going to pick an air quotes winner. I think it's looking like they're both going to be uh, winning uh, between Barbie and Oppenheimer. And we have uh, one of the ways that you can do that is by voting in the audience poll. So on Twitter, uh, Oppenheimer, is, for example, is overwhelmingly crushing Barbie like 10 to 1. So if you really liked if, if you're a Barbie fan, maybe head on over at the Cinematrop and vote Barbie. Again, I think both films are fantastic and I will not tell you which one I voted for. But uh, if you want to give Barbie a fighting chance to win the audience points, um, you want to head Head over to that poll. Also, in the Spotify app, if you're listening, especially via the app on your phone, uh, there's an interactive poll where you can pick the film that you liked best. And again, we're going to crunch all these numbers and we'll be sharing it uh, in our review of the Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem. That'll be the first review we're publishing in August following both Oppenheimer and Barbie. We usually do an every other week review, but currently for this amazing July, we did Mission Impossible last week. We have Oppenheimer this week. And the next week we have 
Barbie back to back to back. So make sure to stay tuned next week. Uh, with all that said, though, let's get into the icebreaker question. So Christopher Nolan, very important filmmaker of the, I would say, 2000s in general, 2000s, 2010s, 2020s. I thought this would be a great opportunity for us to talk about our favorite Christopher Nolan movies, and then then we're going to talk a little bit more about maybe what makes him such an important filmmaker um, of our time. So uh, I'll start with you, Joe, uh, to my left. What is your favorite Christopher Nolan movie and why? Uh, I went back and forth on this. I really like Dunkirk, uh, and I really like Insomnia. So it's almost a tie between those two. I really like Insomnia he didn't write. It's, I think, maybe the only one he didn't write. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't know if that disqualifies it a little bit, but I really love that movie. I love how dark it is. I love the murder mystery of it all. I love Al Pacino. And and Robin Williams, too. (laughs) Um, so, but in terms of rewatchability, I definitely would rewatch Dunkirk before I probably rewatch Insomnia. So I don't know. I love them both. I think it's good to pick two. I'm, I'm going to pick two. I'm not okay, going to lie. Okay, great. That's my answer. <laughs> Dunkirk and Insomnia. Well, the nice thing is, too, those are two very different movies, yeah. too. It's not like you picked The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises or something like that. You yeah. Know? I mean, I like Dunkirk in terms of, like, his – I think that's where a lot of his, like, time, complex storytelling, like, sort of comes in. And I think that maybe, for me, that's the best that he's ever done it. Mm-hmm. All right. Very cool. So Dunkirk, we got a champion. Uh, first time guest, Steven Tyler. What is your favorite Christopher Nolan movie and why? It's Interstellar. And why is just because I'm a I'm a sci-fi space nerd and but um I have probably it it's probably a little biased because I've seen that movie more probably than any other movie in my life. <laughs> like <laughs> I think I saw it like seven to ten times in theaters when oh, it came wow. out because it just struck me so hard that I just had to keep going back and 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 it's you know seeing it in the grandeur of the theater is, is something that's um, something there, but it, it just touches on so many themes. Not only does it touch on space and, and the science fiction of it, but I love how he weaves in the human aspects of it. And he talks about the love of, of, you know, comparing love to gravity and the pull of these things. It's just, it's such a great complex thing. And then, you know, he like, we know that Nolan loves to play with time and complex storytelling. And so like the fact that that was sort of weaved into the physics of that film versus just like, Oh, I'm going to be jumping around like memento or dunk or whatever. It, it was like almost a part of the structure of like, it's like you have to, you know, you're going to put a shadow in your film because the sun casts a shadow. Like you're messing with time because you're literally messing with relativity and space and time. So I just, I loved how that just came together and a complex story with complex topics that I watch and it just makes so much sense. And I feel like that. So I just love that movie so much. Incredible cast too, between that and uh, true detective season one, that was really what put Matthew McConaughey back on the map. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, he was already kind of in the middle of the McConaissance, but those are the two projects where people are like, Holy cow, this guy can act like we yeah, weren't yeah. giving him enough credit, you know? Yeah. He's not just a stoner in the corner. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or I mean, like he or, is, but there's more to right. him. There's yeah. more to him. Yeah. Or he just does chick flicks or whatever, you know, right. Fool's gold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Laurent Chapman, your favorite. No one. So my favorite actually is the prestige. Um, I think, I think what I like about Nolan, very similar to how you described Dunkirk is I like it when it's the, it's more intimate, but he still has that, you know, those, 
intricacies within the story, this kind of, you know, it's always a puzzle in some sort of way. I think his brain only operates that way. I don't think he could tell a linear story to save his life, you know, like, so, which is fine. Cause I mean, it's, I mean, narrative can be fluid and, and, and different like that. And it, it, that's what I, we can anticipate from his movies. Um, but I like how grounded that one is, but it's just, there's a complexity to it, but it's also, um, there's, there's human drama, you know, within it. And I think that, um, when he leans into that, you know, I think like all of the his bigger themes, you know what I mean, have a lot more weight and impact for me personally um, than some of his bigger scoped ones, which I enjoy too. But they're more um, about process, you know what I mean, mm-hmm. than they are about like you know like human stakes. And so, mm-hmm. um, and so I just appreciated that one because I was invested in this duel between these two guys who are kind of both morally questionable, you know, like but there's. But but you're still like rooting, you know, you have rooting for them for different reasons, you know. So um, that's one I, I tend to go back to uh, most often. And it, it is kind of it does feel somewhat divorced from some of the other films, too. So it stands out to mm-hmm. me, too. That one's the one the one I've probably seen the most just because it's really lean and brisk yeah. other than maybe The Dark Knight. Maybe I mean, I struggle with this one mightily because I, I like a lot of his movies for different reasons. I'm going to land on Inception. Because I remember when it came out, obviously everyone loved The Dark Knight, but that was, hey, this guy's telling an original, uh, yeah, I guess it's sort of another weird sort of psychological sci-fi story that's more like a spy movie, and he's doing it on such a massive scale, uh, cities folding on top of each other, and it made me want to like figure out how to do stuff like that in my dreams when I was younger. (laughs) And I think the thing I I appreciate, though, it's another one where every time I rewatch it, there's new things to learn. And I I loved it so much. I was preaching that stuff. Like, everyone needs to go see this movie. It'll change your life. I probably overhyped it for some people. But it was one of those I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And frankly, it was it was it's what led me to film blogging, which inevitably got me to podcasting. So, you know, it's just one of those movies that really meant right time, right place, right age. Frankly, are you, are you saying it planted a seed and <laughs> became your original idea <laughs> and grew? Christopher Nolan incepted me. Definitely. He was like, <laughs> I got to find this guy. Well, maybe we could talk a little bit more about him, though, because um, here's the thing. He's kind of reached this echelon of director at this point that has almost like a cult like fandom. Um, so I would say other directors in this category, Quentin Tarantino, Hayao Miyazaki, Martin Scorsese. So, so what I mean is like the type of filmmaker where they've reached this point where the people who are the biggest fans think this guy is untouchable. Everything he does is genius type of thing. Laurent, I'll start with you and then we'll go to Steven and then Joe. What do you think it is about Christopher Nolan's movies that really sets him apart from other writers and directors that are working today that maybe have uh, sort of earned him the status? You know, I thought about this a few years ago as his profile just started going up and up and up with each project and how he, his name starts becoming like, oh, it's a Nolan pick. You know, you know what to, what you're getting with that and or you can anticipate because it's always associated with ambition, you know, but what he's really good at, I think, is that he because he started within this indie world and, you know, and he kind of got a name for, for himself there. So he was already known for his storytelling ability, you know, and so I think that he is the perfect marriage of that intimate kind of indie root kind of storytelling um, on a with a commercially appealing package, you know, where you get the smart blockbusters, you know what I mean? Where, because you have a lot of dumb ones that come out every year, big explosions, stuff like that. And those things are incorporated in his movies, but he also tells a very um, compelling story each time, you know? And so, um, and it, it just kind of, you know, dispels that myth that the blockbuster has to be brainless and airheaded. And so, 
Um, I think that's what he's really good at is is marrying those two those two universes um, in a way where people from both camps can enjoy the film and appreciate it. Yeah, well said. It's also a great American story too. The guy who started as a scrappy indie filmmaker mm-hmm. and then he cracked the code with uh, Memento and then he cracked the code big time with Batman Begins. Right. right. So I I think there's a not only is the craft, but like there's the just the story of this guy who kind of like worked his way all the way to the top sort of thing. Yeah. Stephen, uh, what do you what do you think? It, it's very similar. I mean, it, it, his scope is always just gigantic, yet somehow inside this vast, massive production, even with Memento, like I was just rewatching that the other day because I was trying to like kind of get back to the roots of where it all sort of started. And just watching that, like I was thinking to myself, when this came out, like this kind of storytelling and the jumping and the changing in the visualizations and just it was so big yet it was a tiny little indie film that, you know, if it hadn't have been so successful, like we would never have known about him. And then you take that, like Lauren was saying, you take that level of storytelling and ability to, to manipulate time or whatever. And you start putting it into something like Batman, like, like him being or him directing a Batman film in the grand scheme of things is, is almost as like controversial as like when he cast Ledger as the Joker, mm-hmm. like, it's like what this guy, like, how is this guy going to tell a Batman film or whatever? But then he does it and and you see this ability to take this grand scale and, and boil it down into these very human moments. And so, and my other thing that I always love about him and we'll talk about it more later, I think, but I love his visual style and I absolutely love whatever, whatever magic he has to work with the composers on these films, the music and the the scores and things are always so connected to the story in some way. And I can't explain it, but it's like, I can listen to the interstellar score, for example, and I can just relive that entire movie in my mind. I was listening a little bit to the Oppenheimer soundtrack on the way over and it was just like, he somehow gets these composers and he'll change them too. So it's not, it's not the composers. I mean, the composers are obviously doing the work, but he has that connection that somehow to pull that out of it. What sets him apart is he just has this, some ability to, to marry these things together where it can be the biggest scope on the freaking planet or in the cosmos or whatever, but still have these moments of intense humanity. And then underneath all that stuff is like just the tension and the audio and the stuff that it, it's a, he's in, I don't know. He puts it all together in a way that, there's kind of a musicality to yeah. the way he does story, yeah. the way he tells story. Because, like you say, you remove the score from any of his movies, and they're not the same. Right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, you know, like the, it, it does kind of inform, and we'll talk about it more with this film. But there's there that definitely feels like it's it's moving in synchronization with everything else. So. Well, I like that you call out the one. What what it could assume? Oh, it's Hans Zimmer, but he hasn't used Hans Zimmer for two movies, and yeah. it's been just the same vibes yeah. uh, in both Tenet and uh, now Oppenheimer. With I actually the- hadn't paid attention because Tenet came out at a time where I was like, I, I, I've obviously seen it, and I need to rewatch it again because I think I've only seen him like once, and that's not enough times to understand that no, movie not at that all. One. <laughs> but I didn't even realize the shift from away from Zimmer, you know, because um, I think. In, in, as much as I love Interstellar and I think that movie is great, I think that score is just perfection um, and it's continued to live on as a viral sensation. Like now it's like if you're going to be on TikTok, you got to know how to play Interstellar on piano. <laughs> yeah. Hans Zimmer had said, and I can't remember if this is before or after Dune, but he had said not too long ago that that was the best thing he's ever composed. Yeah. It was the Interstellar score. Joe, anything you want to add about what sets Chris Nolan apart? Yeah, I mean, I think it is a lot of what y'all were saying is just him coming from that indie background. I think um, barring like the Batman franchise, a lot of, for me, what I think of when I know that Nolan is making a movie is that it's going to be 
original, that it's going to be something that we've never seen before, uh, and creative. So even if I think that the movies aren't perfect, and I think a lot of his movies aren't perfect, I am willing to give that a pass most of the time, just because it's a lot of the time a movie that would never get made otherwise. Uh, so again, just him being someone that as an indie filmmaker cares about original storytelling. And then I also think for him, it's like a true appreciation for what film is. Like he shoots on film. He cares very much about preserving film. Uh, he's like actually a person in film that loves film. And honestly, that's a little bit rare sometimes. I think that's where like the Tarantino comparison could be made is like Tarantino loves film. So... I think that is what gets him a lot of like cred in film. Yeah, he's got principles, you yes. know. He's got a creative integrity that people really admire. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's why a lot of people like are diehard fans of him. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm among them. Uh, yeah. To be clear, uh, I just not maybe not quite cult like status, but it's yeah. one of those where they could announce and make almost any movie, and I'd I'd be there. You know, he's yeah. the he's the air quotes he's the IP type of thing. Very few directors can get a hundred and fifty million. It was anywhere between a hundred and one hundred fifty million dollars budget to make a biopic mm. you know with IMAX cameras like, get like IMAX to make them a black and white film yeah yeah invent yeah. new technology for IMAX yeah, yeah I was going to say like the other thing I, I love about him in this regard is that by through that love of that film he's sustaining this technology that would True. otherwise have died off absolutely I mean even in Interstellar one of the things I love is that like he he did the first um, I don't know what you call it but there's a the scene where he uh, was driving away in the truck. They the first time ever they mounted an IMAX camera on the side of a truck mm-hmm. and like had this like, like what you would normally like strap a high end like GoPro or some other mm-hmm. like digital thing because it's just the side of a truck and it's mm-hmm. driving away. It's not an important shot, but like he was like, no, it's gonna be an IMAX <laughs> camera, and they're like. We're gonna have to counterweight this truck so it doesn't tip over. Yeah, yeah they're so and like, bulky. <clears throat> and it's like restoring technology. And Tarantino did the same thing, like when he was pushing out like hateful eight roadshows and stuff, and like mm-hmm. shipping seventy millimeter projectors around the country to to get that experience, to get that Panavision moment, to get those things. It's like these people are keeping stuff alive in an interesting way, and so it's you know stuff that might otherwise be mothballed or tucked in a corner, yeah. and then we'd lose those lose those scopes and lose those formats i'm very thankful that we have a people like tarantino and nolan though because um it's just bizarre that it takes the two two of the most powerful directors in hollywood to say hey maybe we shouldn't just get rid of it immediately because it's cheaper you know there is something special and we'll talk about it more in the review when we talk about the formats we watched it in but it's a it's a different experience watching something on film than it is on a digital and i'm not going to say better or worse but it's definitely a different experience that just seems like hollywood is uh letting it go you know the hateful eight roadshow is the only reason we even have a 70 mil projector in Oklahoma city. It's insane. It is insane. Like one yeah, I, filmmaker had that influence. You know, like, I literally thought about that. I mean, spoiler alert, I jumped to jump ahead as I saw it in 70 millimeter. And I'm just now realizing, I think I was sitting in the same theater, yeah. but I watched the hateful eight road show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Okay. Well, listeners, what do you like about Christopher Nolan? You can let us know by emailing us at the cinematropolis at gmail.com. With all that said though, let's move into our spoiler free review of Oppenheimer. This is a national emergency. Didn't need a charge. We're in a race against the Nazis. 
what it means. If the Nazis have a bomb. They have a 12-month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial might and scientific innovation connected here. A secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. According to IMDb, Oppenheimer is described as the story of American scientist J. Robert Oppenheimer and his role in the development of the atomic bomb. So a few fun facts about Oppenheimer. This is Nolan's 12th feature film. The first film with Universal Studios, which I think more notably than that, is uh, this is his first studio film not with Warner Brothers. <laughs> Outside of Following a Memento, his first two indie films, every film he's done has been with Warner Brothers. Project Popcorn, let's release all the movies on streaming and in theaters the same day, made him pretty upset. And he basically flipped him the bird and then went and auctioned his movie to Universal. He, he put it up for auction where there were other bidders such as Amazon and Apple and Paramount. But Universal ultimately saying, yeah, we'll rent out all the IMAX theaters for a month <laughs> and give you $100 million to make a biopic. This film is based on the book American Prometheus by Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin, and the latter of which who is uh, unfortunately no longer with us. This is Nolan's sixth collaboration with the film star Killian Murphy. And as of yesterday, the numbers are going to be updated by the time listeners hear this, but the movie is blowing past its original projections and it's on track to reach $77 million on opening weekend domestically. That's actually going to make it the third biggest opening weekend dom domestically here in the U.S. behind The Dark Knight Rises at $160 million and The Dark Knight at $158 million. Um, a, a few th things that are notable about this is, number one, this is a rated R Biopic, not a superhero film, not a sci-fi film. It is a rated R adult drama. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is actually having a bigger opening weekend than several of the summer's other notable flops, such as The Flash, Elemental, and Indiana Jones. And it will be the third biggest opening weekend for a biopic behind American Sniper and The Passion of the Christ. And I checked. It's really close to The Passion of the Christ. So it might actually, by the time this is out, we might find out whether or not it beat Jesus. So wait, I was going to say, wait, The Passion of the Christ is a biopic? I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, according My to Variety. I will not appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> uh, hey, this film, Oppenheimer, we've already talked about how no one's obsessed with formats. This film was made with a using a combination of IMAX 65mm and 65mm large format film. It's, uh, as Joe uh, mentioned earlier, it's also the first film to shoot sections on IMAX and black and white photographic film. That's right. They invented a black and white format for this movie. So cool. Noah, continuing his crusade to preserve the format of film, Oppenheimer has been released on a variety of formats, including 70 millimeter IMAX, which is what no one says is the preferred way to watch it. It's only available in 19 theaters in the country and 30 in the world. Uh, it's also playing in, its, in standard 70 millimeter film in several theaters. The 70 millimeter IMAX film reel for the three hour movie is 11 miles long and weighs 600 pounds. Some little tidbits for trivia night. Well, the way we're going to handle spoilers is obviously this is American history and no one, uh, from what I understand, was very, very, very diligent in making sure he was following actual history. So, 
Though it is based on actual history, we're gonna, going to assume many of the viewers do not know some of the details related to Oppenheimer's personal life, and we're not going to discuss some of the kind of air quotes reveals, the movie that saves mostly for the third act uh, until the s- spoiler section of the podcast. With that said, let's go around the table. Steven, I'll start with you. What format did you watch Oppenheimer in, and maybe you could describe it a little bit for us? Yeah, I watched it in 70 millimeter, mostly because I didn't know how long it was going to be in the few 70 millimeters theaters that we had. And I wanted to see that because I understand, you know, we've talked about that. Nolan is very committed to, to film and format. Um, and it was awesome. Like even as, as it was, the film was starting, like there was a moment between the like pre-show digital nonsense that yeah. they got all the trailers and stuff. There was this extended gap of just black silence in the theater that I, for a moment I was like, Oh, you guys need to get your game. But at the same time I was like, no, this is great. Cause it just, it kind of shut the theater down and like it sort of cleansed your palate. And then even as the universal logo came on, there was, you could just immediately see that little bit of of jitter. And there was a weird, I noticed a weird depth in it that I, I don't often see in, Mm -hmm. and maybe I was making it up. Maybe I was just excited about it being filmed, but um, it, I mean, I figured it was the closest I could get to the preferred method of 70 millimeter IMAX because we don't have one of those in the state or maybe even in the region. I'm not sure where the 19 of them Dallas. are. Dallas. Dallas. And uh, I've checked. It's sold out like every weekend for the next three weekends. I know. We want to go so bad. Yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd love to go. That. So I, I do plan on my next viewing being in the biggest, best IMAX we've got. And then from there, I'll, you know, maybe see if there's, you know. How we can get it universal lines to go catch it in 70 millimeter IMAX. I'm sure it will come back out at some point and do another round or something like that. But well, my, I, I, I was so happy to see, I mean, it's annoying. We were like, I was like, huh, my brother lives in Dallas. I was like, Hey, if I just came down, would you go, we go, we don't make it a thing. And he's like, yeah, sure. And I looked, Every weekend for the next three weekends, except unless you want to sit in the very front row, it's like sold out all day, every day. And the reason I say that is that is encouraging because that tells me it'll probably stay in the 70 millimeter IMAX for a while. So fingers crossed. Leron, how did you see it? I also saw it in 70 millimeter and very similar to Steven. It was very um, exciting because, as you mentioned, once the digital pre-show was done, I had people in my theater that who, who I'm assuming if you're there to see it in 70 millimeter, then you have some knowledge of how that works but there's a lot of people confused about the that extended silence one guy just said someone grab the remote turn it on <laughs> you know like <laughs> that's not how this works you know like mm-hmm. but um but i've been it occurred to me i was like no they gotta they gotta set it up you know it's not the same process and so that even that was exciting and then and to your point i also saw the um hateful eight i think in that same theater as well i think it was theater 12 in yep yep in, um, they also played dunkirk and 70 mil in the same theater oh okay there's that just there's just this i don't know what you how you describe it just kind of a grainy detail to it that it just you can't really you just it that the experience of that in a big screen is not it's not really you know you, you can't really describe it to people who you know are watching it in other in other formats and i think that it just um it adds an, an extra layer of texture and, you know, um, it makes you really lean into how, you know, all the practical moments, you know, are there. The digital the digital formatting typically kind of adds a sheen to it that looks, I mean, like, it, it still looks good, but it's definitely like it by comparison. Like, I'm, I haven't seen it, you know, in IMAX, but um, but watching it this way just felt like a new experience. And, I'm, and I, I get why, you know, it was important. And I'm so glad that I went to see it in that format. You know, it's funny you said that you would have assumed that people in that theater like knew what they were getting into and right. understood it. Literally the guy sitting next to me as we're sitting there in the pre-show turns to me and goes, what is this film about? 
<laughs> what? And no. The girl that was sitting next to me kind of like, I, I felt her like jerk to that. He's like, oh no, I just, my family's out of town and I just decided I was going to the movie. So I just picked this movie. I haven't heard about it. I haven't seen a trailer, haven't anything. And I'm like, you just stumbled into the 70 this... millimeter viewing of Oppenheimer. <laughs> There's someone outside who didn't get inside, started, riff, 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 you know, you guys in the swap spots. <laughs> but by the, I mean, he, I mean, by the end of it, he was like, wow, that was so great. And I was like, yeah, you, you, Picked a good one. You just just lucked in. into a good one. You could have gone to the Transformers movie instead, but no. <laughs> uh, I, it is nice. I mean, it's we, it's weird when I hear those stories, but I, it's also a nice reminder that especially those of us who want go to them, that's like a thing we do almost every week or something. Like it's a bubble, you know. There, yeah. There's a lot of people who literally just like I got two hours or whatever, and they'll just walk up and see what's playing. Mm. Joe, uh, how did you see the film? I don't have a romantic story about this. I've been really busy. I didn't plan very well. Uh, I saw a regular screening. <laughs> um, I was really late on Friday. Um, I think very similar to what y'all are saying. I don't know that everyone knew what they were getting into. Uh, I was sitting next to a guy who I had to ask to get off his phone. Oh. And then after uh. that, he left. He left with like 30 minutes left in the movie. I what? don't know. So it was a weird screening. Um an opening yeah. weekend, really? Yeah, so <laughs> kind of regret that. Uh, <laughs> but I think my husband and I, as I said, we were, we were like trying to hold out to see if we could get into Dallas, and then it didn't work out. And so we were just like, we got to get in because I knew I was doing this today. So that's how it happened. Well, thank you <laughs> for your sacrifice. Oh, you're welcome. I, I also we'll waited till the last moment, but I wound up literally like in the seat I would describe as Nolan's recommended seat. Like I was dead middle. center right in the middle because nice. I went by myself. So it was one of those weird, odd single seats that just happened to be left right nice. there in the center. So I was like, yeah, <laughs> I, it's good though. It adds variety. Cause I also saw it in 70 millimeters. So <laughs> nice. it's, it's good to hear a, a, there's some variety. I saw it at the earliest screening I could on Thursday, which is the sneak peek day. It was a 6 PM showing. So I, I'm sure they had tested the film reel, but they didn't even have the digital pre-show up. So I got in there like 15 minutes early and it was uh, kind of cool. Like you were saying, it's a palate cleanser. And I, I made a joke to the guy sitting next to me. It's like we have to talk to each other or something. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's somehow clearer, but also grainier at the same time. There's scenes where you can see just like the tiniest specks of dust. And it's not in the film reel. It's like in the movie, like he's walking through Los Alamos and you can just see like the dust particles in the air. I feel like those are the details that get kind of uh, flattened if you see it. Or like removed. A, or removed. With like, the digital rendering out. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's, I think to people who haven't seen a movie and film, they're probably not going to under, fully understand or They might even be like, oh, that's kind of like wobbly. I don't understand why that's not good. But you're like, well, yeah, it's part of the experience, though. It's You feel like it's more real and more tangible and like you're like one step closer to to being there with the characters. It's kind of uh, like the, the, the shift of um, music, how we're going back to collecting records. Yes. And my mom's like, why would anyone go back to that? Like you guys now have Apple Music. I'm like... There's something to that, that little, you know, the little cracks and pops when you're listening. I mean, it just adds something, you know, to the music that, you know, um, that you don't, you can't get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. So it's nice. Yeah. You know, vinyls are out selling CDs right now. It's crazy. I just bought one yesterday. Yeah. Very nice. You know, something else I just thought about when you're talking about vinyl, because I think one of the other experiences of vinyl is it sort of forces you to stay engaged because you can only listen to about half the album before you've got to go and mm -hmm. flip it to the other side. And that same note, I thought about that watching Oppenheimer, that there's a person up in that booth who mm -hmm. has to be up there. Yep. Because knowing what I know about 
projection in the 11 mile reel. I mean, they probably switched reels up there. I don't know, like 12 times or something crazy because there's not going to be that many theaters that could single platter an 11 mile reel. So they probably Mm -hmm. had to like do that multiple times. Mm -hmm. So like a little bit of like, there's someone else up there who's kind of keeping their hand on the throttle of the whole thing and keeping it going. Just add that other element of like, this is an experience that people are sharing versus modern digital, which is like just an automated. I mean, I've programmed the automated Mm -hmm. digital projectors. I know how that works. You don't have to be there. You don't have to think twice about it. You're just like, yeah, play it Monday at six o'clock, boom, Mm -hmm. go walk away. So there's just something else about adding that. Like you're keeping somebody else involved in the process and same thing with vinyl. It's like, you got to go back and flip the record. You got to, Got to be up there and pull that switch when the cigarette burned. I don't think they do that nowadays, but it's probably something more advanced. But <laughs> now it's still it's totally though. It feels like a more uh, engaged experience. Uh, yeah. Now I, I I wish more stuff got released on film. Mm. Well, let's just say that. And and Christopher Nolan being the crusader he is is trying real hard. I, I saw an interview with him. He says I just dream of the day when someone else makes a seventy millimeter IMAX film that I can go watch as a viewer. If only someone else could could have that leverage to get all the the, the technology they needed. Uh, all right, so let's get to our thoughts on the movies specifically. What, so again, we're going to start kind of high level. What are our general thoughts? And then we're going to drill down in a spoiler-free fashion on some of the details. And then we'll uh, wrap up the spoiler-free section with a letter grade review. Joe Light, I'll start with you. What did you think of Oppenheimer? What I will preface this with is saying I love nuclear history. Like, it's one of my niche interests. So I was going to be here regardless of you know, anything. Um, I just love humans interacting with things that are way beyond their understanding and, um, and, and their like ability to even like handle and comprehend. So I, I'm really attracted to that type of premise. Um, so I, I knew I was going to enjoy this movie at a fundamental level, regardless of, you know, how the acting was or what the music sounded like or anything like that. So, um, yeah, overall, I was really pleased with the content of the story. I was pleased with the performances. Uh, loved. I'm going to give an early shout out to Macon Blair. I love seeing him pop up. He's one of my favorite <laughs> little actors. Um, as a as a lawyer this time. I know. <laughs> um, I just rewatched Blue Ruin like the other day, so seeing him was really really nice. Um, yeah, great cast. I loved. Uh, obviously, Killian Murphy is amazing in anything that he does. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah, I really liked it. Overall, resounding uh, thumbs up. Yeah, very, very good film about Oppenheimer. (laughs) I don't know how to say more without (laughs) spoiling things. Very nice. Steven Tyler, uh, what did you think of Oppenheimer? Um, It it was everything I wanted it to be and more. I mean, same thing. I have a weird interest in in nuclear and atomic age stuff just because I'm a sci-fi nerd, so it's it's an interesting thing. And we haven't – I don't even think – the story takes place in the forties and I don't think we've even really understood what we're doing in that realm of science still. And there's so much growth there. Um, but then just the fact that like, I don't know, this is one of those things in history that I didn't know anything about. I, I, I heard the name Oppenheimer. I understood the Manhattan project. Um, I didn't even know the first test was called test was called Trinity until, you know, essentially this, I began getting a little more familiar with everything that was going on here. So it, just the fact that you've got one of the, like we've been talking about one of the biggest directors in modern times in some of the biggest 
scopes and formats making a film about this topic and really shining light on something that in American history didn't get a lot of attention. It's almost, I mean, I'll say it's almost kind of akin to, you know, Scorsese and Killers of the Flower Moon. Like there's a thing that like, I'm an Oklahoma and I'm a born racer. I didn't know much about this until the hype of that book started happening and then the hype of the movie and then all that stuff. So I love that it brings attention to something that while very well known, maybe the details and the nuances weren't that well known. Mm -hmm. And so somebody like Nolan attacking it with his storytelling and his ability to draw performances out of actors, even great actors that we know you're seeing them at levels that you've never seen them before. Like he has that ability. I was watching a bunch of interviews and that was a constant theme from the actors was like, there's something about this guy that just pulls it out of you in a way that nobody else does. Um, so I thought it was a fantastic movie. I'm, I'm excited to see it a hundred more times. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I told you earlier, I was, I've just started listening to American Prometheus, which is not a book I was even aware of again until this came out. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited that it's fueling my own interest to like learn more about that part of history and understand what's going on. So I think it's checking all the boxes of what, you know, great film should do is. Yeah. Inspire us to go like, yes, enjoy the the film uh, and inspire us to go out and learn and grow as individuals um, and have conversations, meaningful conversations about said thing. Uh, well said. Uh, Laron Chapman, what did you think of Oppenheimer? You know, I really love that, that Joe and Stephen have both mentioned that like they had kind of a niche interest in this particular topic. And what I actually love is that I did not, you know what I mean? Like in the sense, and not that I that don't find it interesting, but just that it, it's not something I've known much about or something I've I've learned much about. And so what I love about uh, Christopher Nolan is that he can take something like that and make it digestible for anybody, you know, like, or in, in present it in a way that's attractive or, or enticing or compelling, you know? And so, um, cause it's, it's, it's important to know and we have several times now that this is a, a three hour biopic, you know, like in, He's made it into this spectacle and into this thing that we're, you know, that you're just so um, riveted by, you know, throughout. And so I think he also disregards all of the traditional, you know, you know, biopic tropes where it's like we had, uh, contextualizing every like, oh, this is 19, whatever, whatever. And this is that, you know, what I mean, like it's not focused on that. You know, it's it's definitely more insular and kind of like into the the POV of Oppenheimer's, you know, throughout these three, three different significant moments in his life. And I found that, you know, um, also just the way the movie is edited and the way that the music is used in this. Again, it's like we are in scenes briefly, you know, it's like it, and we just keep getting dropped into different timelines. And I never was rattled by that. I was more just, you know, very like, you know, just, uh, I don't know, I'm fascinated by the way he was, he was kind of contextualizing this story in a different way um, and approaching it in a different way because um, it does feel very cinematic while also still having these really timely themes that are paralleling a lot of things that are going on in our life right now. And I think the best biopics do that, you know, where, yes, this is about a specific time in history, but there is a message and a lingering issue that kind of keeps cycling, you know, um, in our history. And you can see parallels into the way that we deal with these kinds of subjects, you know, even now. So, um, but yeah, it's um, it's a spectacle, but it's also very intimate, you know, at the same time, you know, because um, we're seeing what this uh, what the toll of this this particular moment in history had on one human being and um, and the long term ramifications of it. So, 
Yeah, I, I think that's well said. Um, I, you know, no one has. Uh, we're we're actually going to talk about it in the spoiler section, but no one's definitely drawn in, in a lot of interviews been asked a lot about you know is there a you know is there a parallel to how we're thinking about ai and he's like yes like this Mm. is the thing that this is today's nuclear bomb which is like there's this new emerging technology we don't really fully understand it we're already trying to apply it all these different ways and um i think the thing that i love about it is like you said you really (laughs) said uh said it well laron he's taking scientific studies historical events and frankly just bigger themes and larger ideas about uh, human ego um, do the ends justify the means a lot of bigger ideas, but he's able to kind of frame it all through Oppenheimer's perspective. And really you empathize with the character. It feels a very character driven story, even though all everything he's, he's tackling is so much more big and complex and larger than life than one person, um, which I think is kind of part of the point. I think it does it really, really well. Um, I, I, he continues to do the nonlinear editing. Like it's never, no one doesn't do just straightforward films. And I, and I dig that a lot here. Uh, kind of again, reminds me of that f- famous George Lucas line that everyone likes to make fun of now about stuff rhyming, you know? Um, and, and I think no one does a really good job of that in this film where he's like, okay, these are two moments that seem like they're totally unrelated, but we're going to intercut them together to kind of draw out the common commonalities between them to show you that arc and the journey he's He's on now, but he's been on for a long time. I thought it was really, really well done. Um, I would say, I don't know if they're right criticisms. I love this movie. I can't wait to watch it again, frankly. I really want to see it in the 70 millimeter IMAX next if I can, but just any way I can, I want to see it, watch it again. Because it's definitely one, once it's done, you are you kind of go through some shell shock of like, wow, what did I just watch? Uh, to, wow, I want to read the book. I want to talk about it. I want to watch the film again and really and really sink my my brain into it in a, in a way. Because I, I, my initial thought was this movie is too long, even walking away. But the more I've thought about it, the more I'm like, no, no, I think it works. I thought the pacing was off specifically. I will just say there's a significant thing that happens in the back two, and then you're like, okay, so like, what's the rest of the movie? There's a whole other hour left. And, it, and, and uh, my initial viewing, I'm sitting here thinking, eh, I don't know. But the more I've thought about it, and I think it's going to work really well on a replay, because it, it recontextualizes the story you thought you were watching. You thought it was just about this one thing, but actually there's this whole other thing that it's mm-hmm. also about, mm-hmm. where if you go in expecting it to be about the first thing, it might be a little cl- a little clunky. So it's a long way of saying this is not a one-time watch. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Joe, you've mentioned the cast, how well he works with actors. Both of you have. I'm mean, just going down the line. Obviously, we've got Killian Murphy, who we, we've all loved. We've never seen him in a leading role like this before. He crushes it. But let's just go down the line. You've got Emily Blunt, Matt Damon, Robert Downey Jr., Florence Pugh. From the grave, Josh Hartnett, Casey <laughs> Affleck. Rami Malek for like one scene, but he drops like an Oscar winning performance in like one scene. Kenneth Branagh, Ben Sa- Benny Safdie, Jason Clark. Let's see. James Darcy, Dane DeHaan. I had no idea he was in this movie. Alden uh, Elreich, D- David Krumholtz. That's right. The lead elf from the Santa Claus movies. Yeah. All yeah. He's in it. Unfortunately, that's all I could see. But <laughs> Jack Quaid from the boys and a lot of scenes, but only gets like two lines. But man, he plays those bongo drums. Um, <laughs> From Nickelodeon's Josh Peck shows up. My favorite was my fiance didn't know he was in the movie. So he shows up. You've already been through like a whole bunch of, wow, they're in here. And she goes, what the fuck? <laughs> Josh, the Nickelodeon? Yeah. Yeah, that's him. Yeah. I mean, like it's Matthew Modine. Like this is has to be one of the, if not the most stat cast I've ever seen where every single person is someone 
who you've seen do good work somewhere else. I won't let you continue without saying Gary Oldman. <gasps> oh, that I forget Gary. I, won't, I don't want to spoil who he plays, but he has a really meaty role. Yeah, I was that. like, I doubled to, when you said Dane DeHaan, I double took when that, when he, when I was like, oh my God, that's. <laughs> yeah. And then secondarily, when, when that character that Gary plays came, when they announced that like he was coming on screen, I was like, who? What? Yeah. Who is that? No, like, I had the same thing. I didn't even realize he was in the movie. And then he shows up as a, in a very unexpected performance. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Craig turned to me. He was like, is that? And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because I knew he was getting ready. To, his wheels returning. He was getting ready to have a whole mini conversation. I'm like, I'm watching his performance right now. Yes. It's who you think it is. <laughs> it was like, also a, a feature of Christopher Nolan we haven't mentioned, especially in. I would say his post inception or post Dark Knight post inception career, dude. This guy can get anybody to be in his movies for like one scene. Yeah. They'll show up and they always show up and just drop dynamite performances. And this is no exception because Gary Oldman, not a lot of screen time, but what he gets is yeah. Chef's Kiss, just A plus <laughs> stuff. Uh, maybe a better way to say it. it sounds like we all like the cast. What maybe uh, Laurent? I'll start with you. What were a couple of the performances that stuck out to you and why? You know, um, we're gonna dig deeper into it later in spoilers, but. You know, I really thought from the supporting cast, I, I think Emily Blunt has some really, really great abbreviated moments in this um, because she could have just been, you know, she could have just been the wife in the corner and maybe in some in, in some aspect of it she is. But she's given a few moments to shine, um, particularly towards the third act. And I think that moment really shines where it, it got a, it got a nice kind of mini applause, you know, from audience members and. Um, it, it just one of those things where you, you're seeing this wealth of talent that you've seen in various capacities really getting a moment, you know, to flex a little bit in Nolan because Nolan they get they get great material to kind of chew on. So um, she stood out to me um, for Florence Pugh to be in two and a half scenes. I think I felt like she, she was crushed. She's it. very effective and memorable in it, and she's really only there in the first maybe the first third and then maybe like a brief moment in the second act. But, um, so I, I liked both of them, but yeah, man, I mean, I, there really isn't a, a wasted performance in this, but I think probably the one that's going to walk run away with all of the conversation come Oscar season is Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. Um, because we really get to see, I mean, we've seen him play various, you know, I don't know, smart jerk types, you know, like sassy, whatever. But here he's just, uh, I mean, you get to see him act, you know, and it's been so long. It's been yeah. so long <laughs> For real. since we've got to see him out of the out of kind of this cartoonish exterior. You know what I mean? Because even like in movies like uh, Tropic Thunder, which are by still the way, he also said on this press tour that he wants to make another one. So both him and Tom Cruise are on board. <laughs> okay. So I'm just saying. But as an example, it was yeah. like where we now got to just see get it. Nolan on board. But even in that, like you can kind of see like, you know, he could take this really goofy character and give it some. Oh some, yeah, some 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 life and so that character, frankly, should not have worked. No, like, it really should. No. Like it, it was such a even at the time, it was a controversial take. Mm -hmm. uh, like, and he just Very nailed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I you know I I read, I read an interview with him where he said on the press tour for promoting this movie at one point he said I thought the uh, my concern with the Marvel Cinematic Universe was it was going to remove my ability to act. I thought I was going to forget how to, how to be an actor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was really. Great to see him in this movie really showing us, yeah, yeah, you're still great. And he doesn't have, he doesn't rely on any of his schmarmy, sarcastic mm -hmm. one-liner. Joe, he doesn't have any of that in this movie. And yeah. it's so good. Joe, who were a couple of performances that stood out to you? Uh, Megan Blair again. Um, I really enjoyed seeing David Krumholtz. Uh, I thought that he was, to be honest, 
probably one of the emotional cornerstones of the film for me. I think that he gets some of the more emotional moments. Him with those uh, oranges just sharing all around is really fun. <laughs> yep. um, and I also really like Benny Safdie. I yeah. just mm-hmm. really liked that character. I liked that he was, you know, grumpy all the time, and I, I identified with that. So I like seeing him in, a, in was an the, interesting role. What are the only of, uh, as the movie presents it, one of um, Oppenheimer's core group who actually just called him on his stuff. Mm. He says, you're not a scientist, you're a politician. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I just liked seeing him being grumpy in the sort of outline of, yeah. the, of all the group scenes. So <laughs> it's a, he, that last moment, I won't say what it is, but the last moment he shows up on screen. Woo, yeah. Good stuff. Yep. Good stuff. Steven, uh, how about you? Who, who stood out to you? <clears throat> I mean, you're, everybody's touching on it already, but I mean, the, the obvious casting of Killian Murphy here, I just like, for me, that's a, an actor who from everything I've really ever experienced him on outside of like, watching a couple of seasons of Peaky Blinders, he's always kind of off to the side. So giving him an opportunity to like really see what, you know, he's about and what he can do, um, especially in a film that was like, so, so I mean, literally centered on this guy and his character. Um, <clears throat> but then, I mean, everybody else, um, you, you've named all that. Like I was, I'm sitting here looking at the cast list and I'm like, ah, oh, you're, you're getting all my, all the same ones that I had the, the impressions of um, actors. I don't even know the name of, but, I just think that everybody in this, whether they are an unknown or a Matt Damon, just added something to it. And I, again, it goes back to that concept that Nolan just has this ability to just coordinate these people and pull what he needs out of them. Um, so I, yeah. everybody we've already said, RDJ oh, was, was, was killer. Even Dane DeHaan, like whatever that character was and adding his, you know, trademark smirk and then Jason Clark kind of coming out of nowhere and just yeah. being like, just that was such intense scenes with him and so great. Like it, every, every corner it was like, oh my gosh, there's another, oh my gosh, there's another. And they were all just killer, whether they were on screen for 10 seconds or two hours, like mm-hmm. everybody just just crushed us up. I, I do love seeing some of these actors that I have liked for a while, but definitely haven't appeared in air quotes blockbusters. Like Jason Clark's a guy. I mean, he's appeared in a few. I mean, he's he did the Planet of the Apes movie. Mm-hmm. But like, and I like him, but he most people don't know who he is. So when I saw him show up, I was like, and he and he's got, and that's the other thing. No one gives all these people. Yeah, they're small, but they all have like meaty stuff to do with what time yeah. they're given. You know, he, and he's given a lot of good. He's good in investigative type of. Yeah, because if you think of like uh, Zero Dark Thirty or something mm-hmm. like that, like he has that. You know, there's something intimidating too about about his approach. You mm-hmm. know, he's you know he has this very stern like focus fixated, you know, Glake gaze that he gives, but yeah, which is why he could play a Terminator. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, I forgot, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I guess he has been mainstream appeal for the Terminator movie that no one saw. And you guys remember when, uh, when nope. Kyle was okay. No. Okay. Um, yeah, just, I just want to say nice to see Josh Hartnett back. I mean, I saw that he was in black mirror this year too, and he's one of those actors who was so good. And then all of a sudden I'm sure there were, personal very valid personal or professional reasons he just kind of he did what was the show he did oh um, yeah with um the showtime show mm-hmm. i'm totally drawing a blank on that. Like vampires and yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, what was that called it was like three seasons Penny of it. dreadful yes Penny dreadful. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah he did that and i was like that's the i mean that, not, even that show had been over for 
years. So it was nice to see him crop up as kind of like the suave, I'm your friend, but also we're probably politically enemies. You know what I mean? Does it kind of create this interesting tension between we're buddies, but also I don't know how much I can trust you. Sure. Very, he puts off that posture, you know, I thought really well. Um, and yeah, you mentioned Matt Damon. I mean, listen, it's like saying Matt Damon's great is kind of like saying Robert Downey Jr. is great, except for we see Matt Damon act all the time. I don't think he's the best performance in the movie, but he does get some really good stuff. I, my favorite part is when he, they were going around recruiting the scientists and one dude, he's like, this is the most important goddamn fucking job in the history of the United States. Like he just gets some like really good, like shouty moments, you know? So, yeah. Um, but yeah, he's the, the, he's the levity. I feel like he, yeah. he added most of the humor for me in this, yeah. which there's not much. <laughs> so, so. It, 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 that's the other thing we didn't mention about Nolan. His movies are accused of being humorless and I don't think they're humanless he just has a very British sensibility mm-hmm. to his humor so like I, I always even in, in that screening I went to where I'm sure it was a bunch of diehard Nolan fans like everyone kind of would laugh sometimes but they'd wait for someone else to start because like oh, oh this is funny I'm, this is funny I'm allowed to, okay oh yeah, yeah this is funny yeah he got some good jokes I thought uh, okay, so listen, and we're, we're not trying to spoil it, but obviously a bomb blows up in this movie. What? Uh, yeah, I know. Um, the film does not include any CG. No one prided himself on the fact that he didn't use any CG. Everything was done practically for Oppenheimer. So the kind of, I would say, big thing in the second act is how they're, they're test doing the first test of the bomb. It's the thing you've seen in all the trailers where they're trying to see if this thing's going to work. Um, it's been the center of of the marketing, I would say. So I think a lot of the anticipation from the audience is like, this is the spectacle. Do you guys think this delivered? And uh, Stephen, I'll start with you. Yes and no. Um, yes. in the fact that Nolan, in my opinion, took it in a direction I didn't anticipate. But I also think that that was probably informed by the no CG. Cause like outside of actually detonating a nuclear bomb, like <laughs> how do you recreate a nuclear explosion practically? I mean, so I, I think there was some clever stuff. I, like, I was sort of expecting that, like, super wide, you know, view of, like, something you might see off of a stock image or something mm-hmm. like that. But at the same time, I quickly was just, like, I loved how it was. I just, I don't know how to say some things without, like, crossing into spoiler territory. But it it was not what I expected. And then, and so I got a little bit of disappointment. And then it was, like. I was super enthralled by how it was done and, and, and how it ended up turning out. So like it just, I guess what I'm saying is I didn't know what to expect going into it. And I had a vision in my head and it was not that vision. It was what Nolan had come up with and what his visual effects people had come up with. And it was amazing. And I don't know how else you would have done it anyway. So like I said, outside of actually detonating a nuclear bomb, which I half expected to hear that he actually detonated well, a nuclear bomb. So it was funny, not on this press <laughs> tour that I read, uh, but like it was sometime like six months or so ago. It was when the movie was already shot. He was like, oh yeah, we, we figured out, you know, in his very Chris Nolan voice, you know, we, we figured out how to, how to create a very big explosion. You know, it's not going to use CGI and it's going to feel like a nuclear bomb. And, and you know, everyone on the internet was like, so he figured out how to blow up a nuke. Okay, cool. Right. He would do it for cinema. Um, <laughs> Laurent, what did you think about the Trinity test sequence? Yeah, similar, similar to what Stephen said. I, the, the good thing about it is, is I feel like the, the tension and the suspense leading up to it is more effective than the actual effect. But, and, and then I think by the time we get the effect, I realized that I was more invested in the story than I was in the, in that, that one spectacle aspect of it. That's been, like you said, the centerpiece of all the marketing. Um, 
and I'm not going to say it's an afterthought, but I think like the the stakes around it and the um, the the ramifications of what what it means afterwards, you know, was was much more enthralling than the effect itself. But um, but that being said, it's still effective in, in when you when you deconstruct it and in, in retroactively about how he managed to make it look the way that it did without without digital, uh, you know what I mean, um, modification. And so um, it's technically, you know, impressive without without it being like the highlight of the movie for me, surprisingly. You know, I, I was actually more invested in the interlocking, you know, history, politics, and science that was being kind of married here in the story. And so, um, yeah, so I think, I think the, again, the process was more interesting than the actual thing. You yeah, know? you just touched on something. I think the the moments immediately after the detonation mm-hmm. in the film mm-hmm. were more impact. Like, and to yeah. me, that like that's the point of the film, right? The film wasn't to see see a bomb go off. The film right. was what did it mean that this bomb was created, and what are the or the what was building up to it, and then what was the ramifications of it after? And I think he did a really great job in the immediate moments after mm-hmm. of like. Oppenheimer struggling with what just happened. Yeah. Like, oh my God. So now I've succeeded. What happens right. next? Like, I, I will say, with, and again, uh, keeping it vague, we're going to elaborate more, but there's a couple scenes after the, it's like, hey, we did the thing. There's a scene where he's an audito- in an auditorium with mm-hmm. all the scientists at Los Alamos. And that, for me, that's the climax. Like, that's the real climax yeah, yeah. is like, yep. yeah, yeah, we saw the cool bomb go off, but the, where he is just like taking it in and processing it in real time. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, no one just masterfully like, really getting inside this guy's head yeah. um, with some great stuff. Uh, Joe, what did, what did you think of the, the Trinity test? Yeah, I think it's really interesting how we're all talking about it. I have some very complicated feelings about that sequence, I think. I think for me, I was almost too in my head about it, thinking about, oh, none of this is CG. I don't know if I really experienced it in the moment the way I wanted to. Um, I think I was thinking too much throughout the whole sequence. Um, You see so many faces. You see so many edits uh, before the actual bomb goes off. And I actually in the theater was thinking like I found myself thinking about like De Palma and Carrie and like, Mm. is this tense? Like, I don't know. Like, is it just manipulation? I didn't feel tense. I don't know. Again, I think I just may have been too in my head about it and thinking about it and thinking about the film, what it was trying to accomplish. So uh, I need to see it again and maybe just like be more present in that scene. I agree that the aftermath for me, is what was more impactful. So hard to talk about without spoiling. There are, like, two really good moments, I think, after mm-hmm. that sequence where I'm like, that's it. Like, That's what we were trying to accomplish. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I know that Nolan really cared about making this seem dangerous, but, I, again, I don't feel like I felt it was dangerous. It felt... I don't know. It's really hard to talk about well, again without it's, like seeing it again. It's kind of weird because we the other thing is we also know the history. We know that they we know that the test is successful. Yeah, uh, we, we know it didn't destroy the world. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it didn't ignite the the atmosphere and catch the planet on fire. And and I will say, to, Stephen said this too. The the build up to the bomb going off is also pretty rad. Mm. Like like everyone's freaking out doing whatever they're doing is this going to work i don't know we're placing bets on whether the planet's going to blow up like all that stuff was golden the moment itself kind of felt like a little eh. 
I really like the sound. Yeah. I will yeah. say like the sound was really, really effective. They did a clever, I won't say what it is, but they did a very clever thing with the sound that I'm sure was probably actually true to history, but I didn't know. It was a nice little surprise. Yeah. So I'll see it again and then I'll see how I feel about it. I guess. That's fair. I don't know. Like I, I felt like I was thinking too much about it as it was happening. Yeah. Well, that's, that, um, that is a problem though, because uh, ideally when you're watching the movie, you're just in it. In it. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's fair. So let's get to letter grades really quickly. Laron Chapman, what letter grade would you give Oppenheimer? I would give this an A minus. Um, I don't think it's perfect, but it is weighty and thoughtful and complex and and definitely requires repeated viewing. Um, I know I didn't catch everything this first time, and so that's what's exciting about his movies is you can go back and get little nuggets from it. You don't just you, you don't process everything in one viewing and it leaves you just with so much to to process when you leave, you know, um and to mine through, you know, on the way and it sticks with you. It's very haunting by the end of it, you know. So and I think for the person that you mentioned that left, I feel like the most bone chilling sequence for me is the final scene. Yeah. It's yeah. just the way it's all on his face and in the way he's imagining things. It just feels so like that's the movie. This is the point. The movie right here is 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 that right there. And so, um, yeah. So um, a minus for me. A minus. All right, Steven Tyler. Yeah, I I started out thinking that I was going to give it like an A plus because I just I think it was just executed. I think he accomplished his goals and and all plus and did all these amazing things. I I think I'm shifting a little bit closer to just an A. I don't want. I don't want to go to A minus now because that's where Laurent went. But uh, I'll, it's room for growth. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's great. I mean, there might be. I think I won't even kind of what Joe was saying earlier is like, I don't know how much I was in my head a lot during this movie, so I don't know how much I washed over with like, oh, that was kind of weird, or this could be a matter. So I think, interestingly enough, all my subsequent viewings, I'll probably find more things wrong with the film than I found initially, sure. but. At the same time, I, I think it's amazing. And regardless of anything else, what he's executed here deserves an A. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, one version of it or another deserves an A. It's got to have it because there, there's nothing. I don't think anything's ever been made like this before. And, Absolutely. And so successfully made, even with whatever flaws it might have. Right. There's no perfect. perfect what is perfection, really? Right, right. I mean, you know what I mean? Uh, it's Barbie. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> nah, it's, this movie lacks some real energy. Yeah. <laughs> Stay tuned for next week, listeners. Joe, what letter grade would you give Oppenheimer? Yeah, I I, I would probably give it about an A minus too. Like I said, I, I, I don't come for me. I don't think any of Nolan's films are necessarily perfect for me. I feel like there's always like one or two things where I'm like, I wish that maybe we had a little bit more of this, or I see what he's trying to do here, and I wish maybe he had leaned into that more. And I'm sure we'll talk about this here in a second. Um, So there were definitely those moments here for me. I think I had seen your review on Letterboxd for the film before I saw it. So I kind of went into it thinking, like, I know this movie's super long. At what point does it get too long? So I do think that there, again, are things that maybe could have been lost for the sake of time and for the sake of, again, leaning into maybe a few of those moments that I really, really liked and and probably would have helped for me the film be a little bit more emotional. Just because, again, it's, it's such a dense movie and it is based on history, so I understand that there are things he feels like he has to do and has to hit and has to include. But 
for me, I would have liked to see a little bit more humanity in the film. And I know that's such a broad and, and vague statement to make. We can dig into it again here in a second. But um, if it had just been like a little bit more into those into those moments, it probably would have been like an A or an A plus for me. As it is, I think I lean more toward A minus, similar to you. I think that's a fair review. Um, I'm also going to go with an A. Uh, yeah, so my, my review that I put out on Letterboxd and on Threads, because that's mm. where the, it's, it's better than Twitter right now, I, I guess. <laughs> this is not a, a problem for me, but I do want to acknowledge it because I think it's a valid criticism that I do think the women characters are underwritten. It's not really a story about the w- women. We're going to talk about that more in spoilers, but I will just say... The women are definitely given significantly less to do, and the type of things they're given to do are very gender role, obviously, historical drama. So there's it's complex, right? That said, I think, you know, when you have your two main women are cast as Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh, it kind of, they elevate the material so much that I didn't really think it was harmful. But I just want to acknowledge that because it's a consistent criticism he's gotten in a lot of his films, especially from feminist critics. And I do not think Oppenheimer in any way meaningfully addresses that if that's a hang up for you. So I just want to acknowledge that even if it's not a big problem for me, but it is, it is the thing that keeps it from going from an A plus, but I will say first viewing a, like, I think this is an exceptional film. Like I already said, the Leroy, I think it's his most important film. Um, And gosh, he just makes movies unlike anyone else. And and, in a way that is so sophisticated and impressive, uh, yeah, I think everyone should go see this in the theater. Frankly, not going to guilt anybody. But if you have a 70 millimeter IMAX projector anywhere within an hour of you, just know that there's a lot of us who don't have that and wish we did. So maybe think twice about going to see it. It also might be the only way you could the only time you'll ever be able to see it in that format. So highly recommend seat in the theater. If you can get to a, one of those special 19 theaters, absolutely do it. Um, last thing I want to hit on here is uh, other recommendations we pair with Oppenheimer. Um, so I'll start actually go back around the table. Joe, I'll start with you. I think if you have any is, uh, interest in the history of like humans and nuclear energy or, or nuclear disasters or anything like that, Chernobyl, <sighs> Yeah. Um, I think is one of the most beautiful TV shows that's ever been made. Really rewatchable, despite the content of, of what it is, the, the Chernobyl disaster. Um, and for me, I think of what a lot of what maybe this movie lacks for me, Chernobyl does get in terms of like humans grappling with their own morality and immortality and, and the weight of what they're doing and the weight of what it does to the world. I think it's just so wonderful and beautiful and emotional and and just such a such a powerful story. So Chernobyl, 100%. If you haven't seen it. If you have seen it, rewatch it. <laughs> Great show. One of the best of the last decade, for sure. LeBron Chapman. Well, as I mentioned, this is kind of like the culmination of his body of work. And so I feel like it would it would review, I mean, warrant what rewatching his other films um, so that you can kind of get a sense of if you're not familiar with his work, you're not, which if you aren't, where have you been? But like if you but if you aren't for some reason, um, I think it will help inform the way that this story is being told. Because this is not a traditional biopic. It's not um it's not straightforward in that sense. Um and if you are have a familiar grasp of his body of work, then I think this will be a lot more digestible for you. Um but to say something other than a Nolan film, I I I, I think the Hurt Locker comes to mind. Um, in terms of process and dealing with like what these things can, you know, how these things affect people, um, um, that painstaking process and then like the human 
the human toll, but then also the existential toll, and then the long-term historical toll. Um, you know, that all of that is existing in that story um, and here um, for sure existing here. So um, those would be mine. Hurt Locker, that's a great one. I hadn't even considered that. Steven Tyler, what else would you recommend? I, I was right there with Joe. I was going to talk about Chernobyl. Um, I just rewatched it uh, for probably the third time. It's such an amazing thing. And I, I see a lot of similarities, like you're saying mm. about the humans grappling with what this was. And even, even that sort of like scientist versus like government military of like, yeah, how do I get you to grasp what I'm saying? And so there's, you know, it's in the trailer. So I don't think it's a spoiler about that conversation between Oppenheimer and, and Matt Damon's character, the general of like, wait, you mean when we push this button, we might destroy the earth. Well, that was near zero chance. It's oh. like the same thing in Chernobyl of him, like trying to get across, like even as a person, like, no, do not fly us over the thing. We're yeah. going to like, you don't understand the significance of this. Mm -hmm. And so like, there's a lot of, even though there's, 30, 40 years distance between these events and it's, you know, nuclear power versus nuclear bombs and whatever. Yeah. It's such, it's such a good show. Um, we literally rewatch it like at least once a year. Cause and it's I, just, I, yeah, I think the one thing with that show too is like, you know what happens, right? It's history. You even know at the beginning of the show, like this happened and then you go back to the end and that, finale is so tense and scary yeah. and I think that that's another thing that I was looking for in this movie is like my heart pounding through that like whole trial mm -hmm. sequence mm -hmm. Jared Harris has one of the all time great monologues in the last episode so good. yeah about yeah. lies yeah yeah oof it's good stuff o ultimately I'll say like I'm I'm not even like I don't even think I'm in the first out of the first chapter or two of the book but I already get a sense but I would say don't read Ameri if you haven't read American Prometheus, don't read it till after you see Oppenheimer. Because, like I said, there's a couple of pieces of like the storytelling that Nolan does that are kind of just right up front in the book, and I think they they make them film significant and powerful mm -hmm. in a way. But I can already tell it's a, it's an interesting it's going to be an interesting read. I'm going to go a slightly different route. So one of the the I wouldn't say criticisms as much as concerns I've heard from people is is this movie is Oppenheimer just like nuclear bomb porn and sort of thing mm -hmm. and uh I'm here to say definitively it absolutely is not. Uh, in fact the, the whole movie is like really as we're going to talk about a lot more in spoilers Oppenheimer wrestling with should we even invent this? If we do invent it, how can we responsibly use it or communicate to the world about the threat this thing poses to our existence? Um, so it's definitely not a celebration of uh, of violence or Americans dropping bombs. So as part of that, I am recommending two films from one director, Hayao Miyazaki. By the way, born in 1941, so he grew up his entire life in Japan and a the bomb was dropped at an infant age for him and this the world he's lived in has been pure like Japan evolving coming out of World War II dealing and grappling with holy cow that bomb like decimated our country obviously talented talented filmmaker everyone loves uh, Studio Ghibli stuff the two films I want to point out though the, the first one he directed the second one he did not uh, the first one is The Wind Rises which was actually his most recent feature film he's got a new one that just came out in Japan this is the one that came out I think it was 2013 it is about an engineer who loves designing planes he loves the idea of flight and, and has dreams of like being one of the great inventors who flies around in the sky it turns out the only way he can get the funding he needs to build said planes is to build military planes the very military planes that drop bombs on pearl harbor so a lot of 
parallels uh, thematically in between what that character and that film is going through and what we're seeing in Oppenheimer. I highly recommend that one. Second movie he did not direct, but it is from studio, uh, studio Ghibli, uh, Grave of Fireflies. And that is a, an anime. It is basically what was life like in Japan right after the bombs dropped. And I don't think Oppenheimer is very focused on the Oppenheimer perspective. And I think that's, that's the, the film is better for it. But I think, after you see this and you really if you're wondering, like, what was the Japanese experience like? You go watch these two films. I think it's going to give a lot clearer picture on the devastation that the bomb caused on like the psychology of the country has never been the same since that happened. Two films I would recommend there. With all that said, let's go ahead and jump into our spoiler discussion. So if you don't want to be spoiled on Oppenheimer, go ahead and tune out now. Now you're looking for the secret. But you won't find it because, of course, you're not really looking. You don't really want to work it out. You want to be fooled. The movie raises several questions about the intersection between scientific discovery, politics, and the ethics of using science to advance a cause or agenda. These are some of the questions, by the way, big weighty questions. We might not have a clear answer on this podcast, so totally fine. But did you think this film adequately explored the consequences of dropping the bomb, what it had on Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Why and why not? And Laurent, you're shaking your head. So <laughs> no. I'm, I'm making you the first person to speak of. I can, I can say unequivocally, no, I don't think it does. Um, and I think that that you just said um, just a moment ago, that this is this movie is anchored on Oppenheimer's perspective and that it's better for it. And I think it is both the film's strength and the film's weakness that it is hinged on only his perspective. Because I think that um it but it makes sense structurally because I mean obviously this is lifted from um you know and and a bi I mean a, a, a um an autobiographical story. So it's like, but that being said, um it also blindsides or all but, you know, negates the, you know, what the ramifications were for the people that affected the most, you know, like we get the internal and external, you know, toll it takes on him. We even see him watching footage, but we don't see the footage that he's right. watching. And yeah. I feel like while that may not have been in the book or may, but we, we now, you know, in hindsight, understand what, what that, what has happened there. So I felt like if, if I were the filmmaker, that would have been something I would have included into the story, even if briefly a sequence, uh, a, a moment of, you know, seeing what that was like for them, seeing uh, interviews with a, a character that to, to represent or stand in for it. Um, I think om the omission of it is is very, um, I don't want to say tone deaf in a way, but kind of, you know, um, because we can only care about it as much as what it did to those people. Otherwise what he's feeling internally doesn't mean anything like, but we can see through one lens, what it, what it, how it affected people, but it affected more people in a more, in a more uh, external way um, than it did, you know, just this one man. So I think that that's one of my biggest gripes with the film is that we really don't get to see the perspectives of the people that affected the most. Joe, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. Um, even if I had been like a title card at the end to acknowledge anything, Trinity too, like those tests affected people mm -hmm. in New Mexico that are still, mm -hmm. you know, 
feeling those effects. So I I I do agree that I think it's it's a little bit I don't know what the word is. I, maybe tone deaf is the word. Um, it it I I understand that you're sticking with this one guy, and I I also understand like not wanting to. Maybe the choice to not include any of that imagery is out of deference to those people that lived through it. But I do feel like that we needed something. Um, I, what I will say in terms of like how it worked in, in, in staying with, with him and staying with the scientists is like I really liked that they being so removed from the war got to a point where they were like, well, we wanted to use it on Hitler. He's dead. So what, why would we even need to right. do it? Mm-hmm. Even though obviously people were dying and it was very awful in the Pacific. I, I did like that. We saw that they were far from it. They didn't want to use it. They didn't see the point to use it at that point in the war. Um, so it's really hard to stick with that perspective and commit to it. And have it work sometimes and then have it fail in such a deep way at the end of the film. So I don't know what the solution is or, or how you could have handled it differently and still be, like, respectful. And But I, I do feel like that's something that's lacking in the latter half of the film, for sure. All right. Stephen, what are your thoughts? Uh, I mean, I definitely agree with that entirely. But what, what I did find interesting, though, is, um, you know, in the film, I think that this may have been intentional because it's it, there's a moment in the film where they've tested the bomb. It's successful. You've got fat man and little boy on the trucks and they're driving away. And Oppenheimer is going to, to general is like, Hey, like trying to stay involved. And they're basically like, Nope, you're done. Mm-hmm. We're done from here. And like Oppenheimer doesn't even know when the drum bomb is dropped mm-hmm. or detonated until it's on the radio. He hears it the same way everyone else does. Right. So I think part of this might have been intentionally I'm staying in Oppenheimer's perspective and I don't know. I didn't see I didn't even know when it was going to get dropped. I didn't see when it happened. I wasn't involved. I wasn't in a war room. I wasn't seeing, you know, any of that stuff. He was cut out of it. And ultimately, you know, American society as a general didn't, especially back then we didn't have, you know, we weren't seeing, you know, instant Twitter feeds of, of a mushroom cloud over Japan. Like that stuff never really came back into it. And there's a, something else. I don't know if this was in the book or if it was something I was reading or if it was even in interviews I've been watching that was talking about how quickly the fear of nuclear disaster has fallen off because back in the forties, especially right as this was happening, it was, we were worried every other day that the world was going to end. Mm-hmm. And now here we sit decades later, more nuclear weapons than have ever existed on the planet. And I don't think about it every day. I don't think right. that somebody's, you know, it wasn't, you know, that it, one of the interviews talks about how, as they were in production, the situation with Ukraine and Russia kicked off and suddenly even on set. And as they were in pre-production stuff, that became a topic of conversation. Like, Oh crap, this is going on. And Russia's got nukes. Mm-hmm. You know, are they going to, are we going to you know, see on the news one day that Ukraine is gone because Putin decided to sneak a suitcase bomb into it? Yeah. Um, and I think there's uh, – I was listening to the book and there's even a moment um, where post the fact they're 
somebody was talking to Oppenheimer, uh, someone from the military or government was asking, well, how do we detect, you know, now there's this, now the bomb's out there, everybody's got it. How do we detect it? How do we stop from a suitcase bomb being snuck into New York? What's the best tool we could use? What technology, whatever? And Oppenheimer's answer is a screwdriver to open every single box, every single crate, every single thing that comes in. Because the only way you'd be able to stop this is if you checked every single item coming in or out of the city. Because there's no magic like detector wand that's going to alert you. Because you can ship it in pieces and assemble it in a hotel room and then there you go. You know, whatever. So it's as much as it misses the mark on showing us that at the same time, I think part of that was it wasn't shown to people. We, we didn't understand the impacts of this until way later when images came out or stories came out or people from Japan lived it or people like Hayao Miyazaki were making films about it, you know, only 10 years ago mm-hmm. because of that stuff that they grew up with and that society they lived in. So it's, it sucks because I do think the film would have been better for it. Um, we talked about Chernobyl, like there's that great sequence. And one of my favorite things about Chernobyl was the sequence essentially in the credits where it's that like, it's almost that cheesy trope of like, and so-and-so went on to do this, like that you would see in some, you know, stupid eighties and nineties television shows. Mm-hmm. But it was like, this happened. This person went on to go here. This person went on to happen here. We know this story simply because the scientist made these recordings and sent them to his colleagues so that the story got out. Like, so unless there's that direct intent to get that perspective out, it gets lost. And then we don't hear about it for 20, 30, 40, 50 years until it's history and we're researching it again. So it's a tough, uh, tough needle to thread. I think um, I come down on. Yes, I do think it would have been that we do see a scene where he's imagining a yeah. woman, you know, um, uh, actually, ironically, Christopher Nolan's daughter uh, have <laughs> her skin blown off and you kind of get little bits of what Oppenheimer's imagining. I I definitely expected them to go harder. I'm kind of glad they didn't. On one hand, because it's very intense, and I don't know that it's necessary. On the Japan stuff, I've kind of gone back and forth, but the thing I'm I can't I'm coming down with is I know Japan is my understanding uh, is they're very that period of time is very uh, great shame to and their history. Um, I wonder if no one wasn't at least thinking, do I want to capitalize on their suffering? Yeah. On the big screen. And yeah, Joe, you'd kind of alluded to that too. Um, and like, uh, I, I was having dinner with a friend last night. I mentioned before we recorded and his, uh, his brother lives in Japan and said, Oh yeah, they're not releasing this movie in theaters in Japan. Yeah, they don't, you know, they, they I don't, don't want to, they don't want to relive that. They, they want to watch a movie about the thing that like, like fundamentally changed the trajectory of their country forever. You know, yeah. like it's, um, so it's a very, it, I don't know if there's a clear right answer, I guess is my way of putting it. I think on one hand, yes, it does feel like it diminishes the victims a little bit by not showcasing the trauma they experience. On the other hand, this movie really is about Oppenheimer. And I do think us feeling as removed as him has benefits. Steven just outlined a couple of them. It's just like, hey, I built this thing and I just heard about how it was used later. Just like every other civilian. There's a scene where – he walks after the they've done the test. Uh, he walks out of the building with Matt Damon, um, General Groves or Leslie Groves, whatever his uh, ranking is. And he's like, all right, so we head to Washington. And he's just like, well, why would you come to Washington? Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like he's like, you, you built, you built the thing. We're the ones 
we're the ones who figure out how to use it. And that removal, I think, allows us to see more into the lens of like how removed the people making these decisions are from the actual violence. There's the scene where basically they, before they drop the bombs, they're trying to decide where they're going to drop them and Oppenheimer's in the meeting. And it's just like a bunch of dudes sitting in a room being like, eh, what are the scientific downsides? Uh, you know, and Oppenheimer very diplomatically in a political way tries to say, yeah, maybe don't do it. And he's like, Nah, we gotta do it. Well, let's pick the cities right now. Uh, so how about this city? Too big, too big. Okay, we don't want to pick that. Um, yeah, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Okay, and definitely not Kyoto because me and my wife vacation there. So yeah. it, it does, I do think us being in that perspective of Oppenheimer, you're able to see what he's seeing, which is he's having to do all the, he's having to be the talking head in these conversations. They're so far removed from the real world that it, it, I think it adds more complexity to how he's presented on the screen, the big yeah. picture. And maybe that frustration is the point yeah. as well. You know what I mean? Like you're saying, I mean, I can, I can get behind that. I still think some, some, cause the film seems to intellectually understand, you know, like what, what those effects were. Um, cause it's like, we're, 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 we're alluding to it throughout the whole film. Um, and like you said, this film definitely does not glorify the, the making of it. Um, and I think some, even if it, like you mentioned, it was a, a title card of something, just something eloquently, just, you know what I mean? Footnoting that this had this kind of toll, you know? Um, but I think what you're saying is that, yes, like the omission of it in a way, kind of, you know, the fact that we're having this conversation about it is, is a very valuable one, you know, that I, that I hope many people watching it do have, um, might be the point and maybe it creates the conversation by not having it there. You know what I mean? Like in that frustration is very much what he was dealing with too. So, yeah. And I don't want to diminish there are, this is a valid, I think this is a valid point of contention. Like if sure. people say it should have been included, I don't think you're wrong. Like it's just one of those where I think there isn't a clear, there's pluses and yeah. there's strengths and drawbacks to each approach. And it's more like who you can piss off, like by doing one or the other sure. yeah. sort of thing. Um, and I, I think, he stuck to let's keep it in Oppenheimer's POV. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of going back to that scene where, you know, you have all the, the, the head of war and Oppenheimer and all these very important people in the room talking about the plan to drop the bomb. What was you all's take on Oppenheimer's belief that the scientists who built the bomb could influence how it was used? Because I mean, I feel like that's Oppenheimer's weakness is his ego. Right. One of his weaknesses is his ego, you know, um, and uh, he he seemed really sure that, like, he could sway the way people thought about this tool. Um, whereas, you know, especially Gary Oldman scene show mm -hmm. later where he shows up, it's like, oh, no, the people you're working with don't care. They don't care. They think the fact that you're even raising a concern makes you he said, what was he says? Take it that don't ever let that crybaby back in here or whatever. Mm -hmm. Man, um, so uh, uh, Joe, maybe I'll start with you. I mean, what what did you think about how the movie was kind of grappling with the relationship between inventors and how their uh, inventions are used? I uh, think this is one area where I wanted a little more, to be honest. Um, I hate to keep going back to Chernobyl, but I, I just think of those like scenes with Jared Harris where he's like in the meetings trying to be quiet and then he just like, he has to say something because he knows the impact of what's going on and how important it is and and how many people are going to die. And there's, like, a desperation there. And I think that so much of this movie is a little bit, in, in terms of performance, even though they're all great, it's a little underplayed for me. 
And I would have liked to see maybe a little bit more horror, a little bit more overt, like, of that desperation um, and a little bit more, like, panic, I think, about everything for me. Uh, the moment I alluded to earlier with, like, the Trinity test is is seeing the tears in Killian Murphy's eyes after the test has been successful was, I think, one of the only, for me, like, truly emotional moments in that film. And then his uh, friend, uh, Krumholtz, he's sort of, like, not engaging with the celebration. And that was the other moment that I felt was really mm-hmm. strong and emotional for me because he – those are the moments where I feel like they understand the gravity of what they've just done and how it's going to be used and how bad it's going to be. So I think I was just, like, wanting a little bit more of that in the film as a whole – so I don't know if that answers that question. I think um, I think it could have been like maybe a little bit more blunt. Um, Emily Blunt. <laughs> Always more. Um, yeah, just a more like frenzy, more like panic, more. I don't know. And again, it's it's hard to judge or ask things of a movie when it just isn't that, and that is just part of film criticism, but. Yeah, I think I think I just wanted a little bit more emotion to be involved in all of those different moments, and it's so quiet and so underplayed. And and again, it their focus is a lot on like exposition and getting through it and moving quickly, and so it's just sort of lost in in service to all those other things. Mm. Okay, so we I think I, if I'm hearing you though, like you you're thinking we should have had more moments where we really take in like the what the successful test means for the characters. As much as the world at large. Yeah. And as much as we are sticking with Oppenheimer throughout the film, again, what I kind of alluded to with the Trinity test is, like, we're cutting between so many different people, and maybe we just stay with him. Maybe we don't need to see, like, everyone else, like, a hand hovering over the button or whatever. Like, maybe we just stay with him and and feel what he's feeling in that moment. I don't know. That's just me armchair filmmaking. (laughs) (laughs) Laurent, what did you think about how the film explores uh, sort of the uh, relationship uh, with inventors and their inventions? I think it kind of also exposes Oppenheimer's kind of naivety about, you know, like that he had any control over the influence of how this was going to be used. And I think, you know, because we talked about this off, off the recording a little bit that you know, the people he's recruited, he has some familiarity with and some relationship with. And um, I think he assumed too much, you know, to his detriment that that by doing so, he was going to be able to influence how this was used. And because very quickly, after all of that painstaking work is done, you see how powerless he was. He was so powerful in the process, but so powerless with, again, how it was going to be ultimately employed. And so I think that... Um, that's where the weight of that comes, that shift of, again, because there was there was an aspect of ego involved with it when he was doing it because there was something very intoxicating about being on the precipice of something, you know, unique and novel and and the first, you know, of, of its kind. Um, and then immediately, once he realizes how much power, you know, that, you know, figuratively and literally, you know, that this was going to have, you know, um, it became very clear that how much danger, you know what I mean, like w- we were going to be in um, once once it was lifted from his grasp, you know. So, um, yeah, I think um, I think that's really what he's he's uh, 
dealing with emotionally, internally, you know, um, in those closing scenes is just like where, what, you know, what now, what happens next? And he even mentions it in one of the, I think one of the cross examining is like, I feel like I have blood in my hands, you know, and, um, and they're trying to convince them that, you know, no, we, we, we did the thing we did it. You didn't, but, but these things don't exist without that process that came forward before. So it's like, I can't remove myself from this. I can't not feel somewhat responsible for it because it wouldn't have happened without my influence. Mm, definitely. Stephen, what was your take on this specific area of the film? Um, naive was the word that came to, to mind when I read the question, just because again, it's like, it, it was kind of alluded to along the way um, in terms of how regularly the, the government and the officials and the people were like stepping in. But at the same time, uh, they also acknowledged that without Oppenheimer, like there's no way all these pieces would have come together because he, he was the, so we're going to talk about Nolan's culmination in this film is like Oppenheimer's experience throughout his life. And the people he studied with and meeting Niels Bohr and doing these things are all the pieces of the puzzle that were required to successfully achieve this. And mm -hmm. he pulled them together. And so without him, that wouldn't have happened. And so that created this sense that like, this was his thing and his project. And in reality, it absolutely was not, which I think we all kind of knew as we were watching this that like you're, you're a little naive to think that you're actually going to have any say in this. But at the same time, it's interesting because I was just thinking about this. I don't know in terms of military and technology, like in science, like how were there moments before I'm trying to think of like a, a significant invention scientifically that had this big of an impact on military and, and war and politics as something like this did. Cause like, maybe like the jet engine kind of yeah. was like one of the previous things that like, but even it wasn't, that wasn't even, I don't think really a thing at the time. Cause I'm pretty sure that Hitler and the Nazis were one of the first people to test jet engines. So it's like right. right on the same time, stuff like that was being developed. And I don't think you can like harken back to the time, the gunpowder and the bullets that's too far. That's so old technology at this point, like what scientific and technological breakthrough had as much of a military impact as this thing did at the time. So there was almost no uh, precedent for a scientist creating something that then had so much effect on, on destruction and death. Um, uh, so it, it also was uncharted territory for, for a scientist. Like he had, you know, that little bit of naivety might have been somewhat, justifiable to think that you could have had that because I mean, I even think about the moment where, you know, they come up with the, the guy presents the sort of math. that's like, um, Hey, if we push this button, we might ignite the atmosphere and chain react. And, and that freaks every one of the scientists out, right? There are, you check this, you, he goes to Einstein, like, mm -hmm. look at this, like, and every single one of them was like, Oh, holy shit. Um, this could, this is significant. And then by the time he's presenting it to, to general, uh, was Groves. It, Groves like even Groves like wait a minute you're saying we push this button we in the world and he's like well yeah it's not zero like he's it's almost nonchalant <laughs> to him at that point and it's like you've even like traveled that sort of arc of like this is the most significant piece of information that we might be dooming our entire race to finally like well it's you know scientific it's non-zero it's not you know we're never going to get to zero but it's like he almost dismisses it so at the same time I think he he's part of that problem too, of like diminishing the significance. Mm -hmm. um, but then like the fact that you just told the military that this thing might destroy the world. And if their reaction wasn't, well, we've got to shut this down until mm. we can be more sure. Right. They're like, 
okay, well, we're going to power forward. Like that it's should have the, been it's a, worth the risk. That should have been yeah. a significant insight that like, no matter what you tell them, they're going to decide which direction to go with this and whether they use it or not, or where they use it. So again, I just come back to like, there were moments where I feel like he should have realized this and he just, I, I think you said the one thing I kept getting out of this film at moments was especially all those close-ups, and they talk about Oppenheimer's gaze and you're always in the, in his brain seeing how the quantum world he's picturing the quantum world. It's like every time they're doing that stuff, that that look in his face, I attribute that to drug use. Like, yeah, it's like I would if I didn't know any better, I would say you're showing me the face of a guy who just did like five lines of coke and just like, <laughs> but like it like the the intoxication of like oh my gosh we're gonna we're gonna uncover this piece of the quantum world he had that and that's part of the oppenheimer journey too is he's not just the father of the atomic bomb he's the the guy who brought quantum physics to america at right, a time yeah. when nobody else was thinking about it he went studied learned and brought it back and was like no this is the this is the really interesting science that we mm -hmm. need to be you know looking at granted the the branch here into to building a bomb with it but yeah so just it's naive i mean there were so many so many moments where it should have dawned on him that he was not going to have this control yet he continued forward right and it's almost like that was how he justified continually well i'm always at the table i'm gonna have a say they're gonna listen right. to me you know when you're a creator you do something and you know whether it's building a bomb whether it's making a movie, whether it's making a podcast, you you make a thing, you, you, you do it with the best intentions, you do your best job. But ultimately, once you put it out there, you have no control over how it's used. Mm -hmm. This very podcast, someone 10 years from now could take a snippet from this podcast and be like, oh, look, Caleb, you said this awful thing that that is applied to something totally different that I didn't even know would exist in 10 years, right? Um it's the same with the movie with Christopher Nolan. I actually, I made the joke at the top about the, no, we're not reviewing the dark Knight. I, I, Christopher Nolan, uh, I don't know if you've watched the interviews. Anytime he gets asked about superhero movies on this press tour, which is almost every interview, he is immediately like, let's, let's not talk about it. He's like, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here. I, there was one time he's like, I'm not here to talk about other people's superhero movies. I'm here to talk about Oppenheimer. And it's just, uh, he, in a lot of ways is instrumental in the rise of superhero movies that have taken over Hollywood. Uh, and I, but I also don't think he likes superhero movies. Yeah. So um, that's another example. Um, so you guys have already said everything I would say. It's naivety. Uh, it's ego. It's the ambitious idea that you can be the one who does something first or do something that makes a difference. But that's not always – the difference isn't always positive. And it's worth stopping to ask the questions rather than rushing into it. And I thought this movie did a really good job examining those themes. Obviously, they're applied – first and foremost to science, but I think you could apply it to any sort of like creative thing, uh, creative endeavor out there. I, I think it ties really well into the moment I want to hit on next here. Um, and then we'll, we'll jump into the next topic, but you know, there's the closing moments where the whole movie is framed around like, what did Oppenheimer say to Einstein near that pond that really set him off? And, uh, you know, you already hit a little uh, hit on this Laurent. What's going to happen next? He's like, I, he's like, you know, we, I showed you those numbers. I said that we could start a chain reaction that would destroy the planet. He's like, and I think we did, you know, and, uh, just kind of seeing like him take that. And the final shots of the movie were really, I mean, truly, uh, bone chilling. Uh, I just want to give everyone a space to talk about the final moments. Um, how did they impact you? Laurent, I'll start with you. I love that scene so much because it's like, we could imagine multiple different conversations that could have happened in that moment. And I think it was so smart and strategic, obviously to not reveal what that, what that conversation was going to be. 
until the final moment because it really does it does it's like a nice bookend to to everything you know that that preceded it because like that scene happens so early on in the story but our perception of what's happening there is not what actually happened and when we are when it is revealed at that point we've seen everything in the story we've seen everything that's manifested as a result of it and so that conversation about what could what what could and what ultimately will start you know from this um it's haunting you know it's haunting to reflect on you know so um yeah i really loved i really loved all the exchanges with him and 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 albert i thought that was those are really funny because that could have been really you know, cheeky and kind of silly, you yeah. know, that character. I mean, you know, Einstein's a tough one to do. He's been like memed so much and everything, yeah. you know, it's almost like it could have been cartoonish and a little not, but I think that they grounded their conversations to be br- brief, but impactful each time, you know, cause I think there's about three or four scenes they have together, but um, that for sure was a great, a great moment. Steven, what'd you think of this? Uh, the final exchange? I admittedly don't remember much about what that exchange was. Um, I, I, it's mixed up because the, we see that moment in so many different times that like, I don't remember exactly what was said. I think that part to me though, was more um, about um, I, I was more impacted by the sort of reveal of, of the other part at the end that like it was um, what is the Senator's name? Strauss. 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 Like his perception of that moment. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, he was more worried about, well, what did Oppenheimer say to me? Make mm-hmm. Einstein hate me. Like where I, you know, and it's like, well, dude, you're essentially the villain of this whole story. So of course, of course there's, there's something. But in what there. about me? Yeah. And so it was just, it, it was just interesting to me. I, I love that reveal later. I love, I mean, that's just a classic Nolan thing of like teasing you the moment and then coming back later and giving the perspective on it and giving you the insight to it. Um, and for a character, I, I, I kind of wish there was one of those things. I kind of wish there was more Einstein in the film because I think it's a very interesting perspective of it. But at the same time, like I, I like how reserved they were with that. Cause I think there's even a moment where his attitude about the whole, like it's as he's shown him the equations and stuff about the, the, the earth being set on fire. He was like, well, you know, I'm, I'm shitty at math. So why are you showing me that? Like, why do you <laughs> yeah. think I'm going to have any perspective on this? Cause I don't know. I don't even know if this is accurate. Like, yeah. um, so there was a, there was something else about the scene with Einstein. And I don't remember why I stuck with this, but the very first moment that's before the ending scene, but that where we're introduced to the fact that they have this conversation, the fact that Oppenheimer walks up and it like the wind blows the hat off of Einstein's head. Yeah. I just, I remember thinking in that time, like there's something significant about that imagery that I, I couldn't put my finger on that. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to come back later to think that like just the, the metaphor of like literally blowing blowing Einstein's mind with something. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is going to be a significant moment later in the film. And it's something about that, that moment, partially because I had been reading something about the significance of Oppenheimer's hat. And so mm-hmm. it was just this weird thing that he was, this was a guy with this iconic hat thing was walking up to this other, obviously iconic scientist. And it like blew the hat off. And that was sort of the reveal that like, you could really tell it was Einstein. Cause they didn't say his name. I don't think until you know, we all knew who it was, but so the, there's just an interesting, it's one of those things I'm, I realized after the fact, like I have to go back on my next watch and really focus on every moment that that scene is presented and the different, mm-hmm. different moments in time where we get reveals about what happened there. I want to say three times. I think, I think we see it three different times. I think yeah. Joe, what was your take on the sort of final moments of final exchange? Yeah, I really like it as a narrative device. Uh, I like it as sort of 
I don't know, Chekhov's Einstein, where you know you're going to come back <laughs> to that at some point. And you know that you can expect that through the rest of the film. I do like it as a final scene. I like it as an exploration of perspective. I do think I need to see it again to really feel what's happening in that scene. Um, I do think, like, as I said, it's a, it's an effective ending. I'm not sure if it, like, landed with me as 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 much as intended, like many other. I, I Again, I think it's just a, an issue of it being probably close to one in the morning at that point. Yes, yeah. um, processing everything that is happening in the film. Um, I do like the final scene. I like the way the sound in that scene is played. Um, but yeah, I, I think I just need to see it again to really like sit with it and, and feel maybe what's happening in that scene a little bit better as with other scenes. Yeah. Again, Nolan, not a one-time watcher kind of guy. Yeah. I like it as a capper. I think Lamar, you said it really well. It's able to take all the themes and, and bring them together. So I have like three different takeaways from that scene. The first one is Einstein saying that he kind of talks about this party they had thrown for Einstein after a great accomplished scientist. And he's like, but that was also you guys saying, we don't need you anymore. And now I have to live the rest of my life watching you scientists do whatever you want with my science. Uh-huh. And he says, and now that is, this is, this your, is life. your life. This yeah. is your future. You have done a thing and the next generation, they're going to move on without you. And that's why they, they have that whole like kind of montage of like, he's getting, he's old, they're giving the medal. Mm-hmm. And it's like, these are all your friends who are going to build off of your science and you have absolutely no control of what they're going to do about it. And they just think of you as the, the old guy, yeah. right? You know, this is your contribution and we're moving on. Um, so that's like number one. Number two is the line about the chain reaction piece. We talked about that and I was thinking, you know, you, we think of it as in a literal sense, we're actually going to light the atmosphere on fire. But in that moment, when Oppenheimer says that he's talking about, I set into motion a series of events that will lead to the end of the planet, like one way or another. We're not sure how long it's going to take or what, but like in his mind, his stance is I started something that will inevitably be the end of the human race. Yeah. Um, that's number two. And then number three is him just visually realize, imagining what that looks like with all the bombs and everything. Just, uh, I'm getting chills right now. just thinking about it, <laughs> but it's, um, so for me, it was like a one, two, three punch. It, it really worked uh, well for me all around. It was a nice reveal as a narrative device, but also really kind of put a pin in like, I think what Nolan was trying to, to get at. I do at least want to spend a little more time talking about these narrative framing device uh, because this movie is shot in black and white and also in color. And uh, Stephen, I'm really glad you brought this up uh, in relation to Memento. Your natural inclination is to think, oh, yeah, it's like Memento. So so this one's in the past and this one's like the backwards. You know, you're like thinking past, present or whatever. It becomes clear what roughly half with the movie. You're like, wait, that's not that can't be it because we're seeing some scenes mm-hmm. from the like different ones, the same scene twice from different perspectives. Um, I might have been behind the eight ball, but it really wasn't until act three when I realized that the black and white shots were all RDJ's POV mm-hmm. and then all the colors were Oppenheimer's. So, Stephen, I'll start with you. What did you think about how they used this, uh, the the different formats? Yeah, I think I had seen something or heard something early on where they were talking about that. And because it was it kind of came out early that like and this is in a couple interviews I've watched recently, too, that like. Nolan did something unprecedented here and then he wrote the script in the first person. In fact, I watched an interview yesterday where uh, RDJ was talking about reading it or maybe it was Matt Damon. I forget which one of them was talking about it, but they're like, normally you read a script. It's like Oppenheimer walks across the room. And this one, like as he was reading the script, it's I walk across the room. And like, so that finally kind of like cemented in my head what that 
was what they were actually saying about that. And so I'd heard that the color was first person Oppenheimer's perspective and the black and white was third party. It didn't specifically go into the third party of Strauss or anything like that. But I think pretty quickly I realized that it was Strauss because he was present in every one yeah. of the black and white shots. Mm -hmm. So it had to be that now then it like, <clears throat> so I, I kind of knew that there was that like, like that difference between them, but I, I didn't land on, you know, why? And then ultimately throughout the film, you start to question like, well, obviously this guy was like important in this whole process, but why are we actually focused on him? Right. And you sort of like moving into the, to the, to the next period of this is that like, you're realizing that, that he is at the end of the day, the, like the villain of this story, you know, mm -hmm. in, in a sense that anybody can actually be, I mean, some people will say Oppenheimer's the villain because he built this <laughs> world ending device, but like, he's the one that's like, and even at some point you think that like uh, general groves is like the, the bad guy in this. Cause he's mm -hmm. the one that's always like, I'm forcing you, but to the same, same thing, like to bring back Chernobyl, like it's that same relationship. Um, I don't remember any of the characters names in that, in that show. So I'm going to be that, but the, the main scientist guy, like there's one of the arcs in, in Chernobyl is he's convincing this government official who starts out by thinking you're a waste of my time. I don't even need your shit. And back there on this plane, and he's like, tell me how a nuclear reactor works. He's like, great. Now I know how it works. And I don't need you anymore. Mm -hmm. But then by the end of the, that series, he's kind of becomes instrumental in it, We talked about this too, like Oppenheimer's naivety that he could have influence. Well, this other scientist in Chernobyl, because what you said, Joe, he repeatedly, like anytime he's, he can't help himself, but bring it up. He can't help himself, but say, no, you have to listen to me. And by the end of that series, that re repetitive nature is the only reason we know what happened truly happened in Chernobyl mm -hmm. is because he made those points to like fight for that. So all that to say is that like back to the question here is, um, yeah, I, it, I knew it kind of early that it meant something, but it was very significant. And then it, it really made me pay attention to those black and white shots even more so. And it was really interesting to kind of see those are the few moments that you aren't in Oppenheimer's head. You're mm -hmm. in everybody else's head and you're kind of seeing it from the outside. And, but then his reaction to that is like, you jump right back into his head and you understand his, the nature of why he's reacting. So I thought it was an awesome use. And I thought while it, it harkened back to Memento, it wasn't this, like you said, exactly. it wasn't the same device. It was something new and something different. Um, and it was an interesting way to do it. Joe, what did you think of the, uh, the different formats? I, I think I like you had, seeing maybe a portion of the script where it was like I sit in a chair. So I, I think I came into it spoiled and I would be interested. Obviously I can never have this experience, but I would be interested to know had I not known that when I would have figured it out. I might be jumping ahead cause you, you later are going to ask like, what did the subplot add? Um, I think that, this was a really interesting way to explore sort of the political side of what was going on. Um, and as a feat of writing, really well done. Like, I, I, I can't, I don't even try to think in a lot of cases of how he is plotting all of these things and outlining them yeah. and figuring out, like, in what ways do they work and how are we going to edit it together? It's just like, I don't even want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, that's not the way that I personally like to tell stories. I think it's really interesting. Um, it, it, in some cases with Nolan films, I'm like, 
yes, that is a feat and he accomplished it. Was it necessary? I don't know in a lot of cases, and this might be one of them for me. It, I, I'm not sure that, again, f- f- in the case of, like, it being really dense and complicated and in, an interesting way to tell the story, I don't know if it's necessary for this story, but I, I can appreciate that he did it and he did it well. And for me, maybe some other things are lost in it. Um, but he's never going to tell like a straightforward story. That's just like not what we get from him. So all of this is moot. Um, but his brain doesn't work that way. He thinks nonlinearly apparently. So (laughs) I don't know. Um, so I, I guess my overall thoughts are it was really well done. I thought it was interesting to reveal that because I haven't read that book. My husband's currently reading it. Like I didn't know that was like the first thing that you find out in terms of like, who's the villain of the story or villain. Air quotes. Um, Yeah, so it's definitely an interesting way to finish the film and keep the audience engaged, as Lauren said earlier. Like, it's definitely something that you have to be paying attention to. But at the end of the day, I'm like, do we need it? Do we? Uh, Well done, but uh, maybe inessential or gimmicky. Okay. Uh, (laughs) No, no, that's fair. I think that's fair. I think that's a fair criticism. Uh, I think it's fair to, like, ask the question. Yeah. Especially with a guy who's known for doing that thing. Uh, LeBron, what did you think? I agree with both points, but I also feel like now that we know it, I wonder, like, on second viewing how effective it'll be. Because now, not knowing it in the moment was part of why it, the gimmick or the effect of it, you know, once it's revealed to you or it's aha, you know, that kind of, um, you won't get that. You won't get that on the second viewing at this point. Now it'll be interesting to just see how he was able to, um, kind of stealthily not reveal that you were actually getting various perspectives on this issue. But what I did think was interesting, I was watching it. And the reason why those scenes kind of, I was always very curious about them is that, Robert Downey Jr.'s character is very is the focal point of every single one of them. Yeah, you know, like there's even some sequences where Oppenheimer's not even present. You know, it's just him in a room talking with someone else. You know, so um, so I knew there was something to it, um, and I was just waiting for that beat drop with that. Um, and when it does, I think I think similar to what you're saying is like like oh that's clever. Again, it's it, it's manipulative in a way that you're like I don't know if we need it, but it's cool. It's a cool trick, you know, but and it feels very up, you know, uh, Nolan's arsenal of, the, of 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 tricks to do um, with narrative filmmaking, and so I think that um, um, I appreciate the craft of it. If if again, maybe not being entirely necessary, but it's a cool framing device. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, so. Here's the thing, I. <laughs> I never trusted Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, like from the beginning, I was like, I, I feel like there's something going on here. So, I didn't pick. So that was the thing. I didn't pick up on what the different colors meant until really late. And that's actually when Act Three kicked in for me. I was like, Oh, we've got competing narratives. Okay, and we're, you know, you're, you're, they're really starting to come together again. I, I feel like I was behind the eight ball on like the actual cinematic storytelling piece. But from the beginning, I was like. I don't trust Robert Downey Jr. Like whatsoever. I don't know the history, but I don't trust him. He's a politician. He's trying to get in the president's cabinet. I was like, either this guy has already backstabbed him or he's going to it. There's no way in which this guy comes out defending Oppenheimer because McCarthyism, he, yeah. if he'd done that, he wouldn't have gotten the position. So, yeah. um, 
I didn't trust him from the get go. So when it, the actual reveal that he was the guy who tried to kill Oppenheimer's career, that that really did, I I don't think it was bad. It didn't really surprise. It wasn't like a prestige type reveal where you're like, oh. That said, I do really like so so the reveal part. I think that's the part for me that felt somewhat gimmicky. But I did really like the use of multiple perspectives to highlight, and I cannot wait to rewatch it, knowing from the jump that that's the the difference. Um, especially thinking about the the time the way we see that Einstein scene three different times, I love it. Like like Robert Downey Jr. is just so sure that Oppenheimer said something uh, to Einstein that because he's such a narcissist, mm-hmm. you know yeah. what I mean. Honestly, frankly, casting the guy who played Tony Stark in this role is pretty on point. <laughs> um, I I really liked. How how it tells us about how different perspectives inform how things are done, yeah. um, and how much it motivated how, him his character's choices throughout, and yes. it wasn't even about what he thought it was. Well, and truth is malleable. Truth is malleable. Whose who do, whose story do you believe and why? Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I, I do think there is this idea of like what is the truth that is writing throughout, and and the truth is subjective. Um, it's all about whose story you decide to listen to. And, and it's, it's why it's important to understand the motives of Oppenheimer building the bomb versus the people who are trying to rewrite the story afterwards, you know? Um, and again, I think this, the other thing I want, I want to add is, uh, not necessarily related to the framing device. I think this movie does a great job highlighting American history and not its finest moments. Like you guys had this guy build a weapon, you use the weapon doing like the opposite of what he said. And then later you came back and tried to bury him and kill him as a career and label him as a communist. Um, you know, it, it just, it, it's kind of showcasing, um, yeah. America in a way that I really appreciate because it's honest, it's not saying America's trash, but it's also like this stuff happened. It, it really did ruin people's lives. Mm-hmm. And even to the greatest heroes among us, no one's invulnerable to politics. Yeah. yeah. Um, Which is also something that's very much resonating with the world today. Right. And what's going on in politics in general. Absolutely. Um, well, really, is there anything else? Uh, I know I had more questions, but with time in mind, was there anything else you guys wanted to add about the d- subplot with Strauss and RDJ or the different way they framed it before we move on to the last piece? The only thing that's come to mind as we were talking about this is is, is we've been sort of, I feel like, emphasizing was the, the black and white stuff effective at telling that side of the story. But in a way where I was just thinking about it, what it really did was it it set very clearly that the color stuff was Oppenheimer's yes. perspective. And so it was, a, it was a nice way, regardless of how effective it was or what it did or whatever, it was a nice way to say that like when they were interjecting these bits of the story, it was clear that that was a separate perspective and that this was Oppenheimer's and this was someone else's. Mm-hmm. And so... It's inter- I'll be interested to go back in the second watch because I'm trying to think were there were there any of the scenes that were retold in both? There was that scene. Um, I I don't know if it's the exact moment, but there's a lot of overlap, and there was a, there's that scene where they get together at that dinner table. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. We see that one from both in color and black and white. I don't know if it's the whole conversation or if it's different yeah. parts of it, but it, there's a lot of overlap. You I see them in the same room in the same moments. Yeah. I think maybe. the only other scene that maybe is that way is there's a, a it that reveal that like there's some hearing or something where Oppenheimer made fun of Strauss or made Strauss look. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I think that one is also shown both both. times, but I think there's only a handful of those. I'll be interested to go back and watch for that specifically to see like 
what is the difference in the, the right. perspective there? Absolutely. I, I do think cinematically just start visual storytelling. Yeah. I think it's really powerful. Again, even if I thought the reveal part was weak, I don't think that's necessarily how it's set in my mind. That's separate from the black and white part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay. The women of Oppenheimer. Uh, I just want to acknowledge this. Uh, because again, it's a criticism that I'm sure if we don't talk about, people will be like, oh, you're all about pro saying that sexist guy. Yeah, whatever. His, his movies are great. Now, um, here, here's I'm just going to throw the question out there. Uh, do we think that Oppenheimer provided meaningful enough roles for either of the main actresses being Emily Blunt and Florence Pugh? Again, want to be very clear, at least my perspective is the actresses are amazing and mm-hmm. elevate the material. Mm-hmm. So I'll start there. The question is, were they were they written were they given enough to do was it the part where they got fair um okay joe i want to be very careful (laughs) you i know you do not speak for all women and you're not the token woman at the table but also it might be best to hear your perspective on this first yeah um it's hard i and i understand that it's hard because there are so many people in that period that are marginalized and unless you specifically seek those stories out and make a concerted effort to tell them in the context of telling that story, they are going to continue to be marginalized. Um, What I'll say from my experience, like as an individual watching this film, it is very much for me whiplash to, I watched Barbie on Thursday and Oppenheimer on Friday. I'm very glad that I didn't do the double feature, not only because of the time, but because I think it would have been such a jarring experience to come from something like Barbie, which is like so femme, so many women on screen, like so much of it being like from that perspective and then go into Oppenheimer and it's like a sausage fest, to be honest. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of actors in them, but only like two or three of them are women. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And even like the experience of like being in that theater, I I told my husband, I'm like, this crowd is such a different vibe from the one that we were in for Barbie, which is like, for me at least, a very safe environment. Like, it's a totally different movie, a a totally different crowd. I, I understand that. But like, the vibe is very different. So all of that is sort of coloring the way I experience this film. I I don't know. Again, I think it is just the fallacy of this film being Oppenheimer and his perspective and his experiences. Like there's no really, there's no real way out, out of that. Like it, it it's just his movie. So do I think that there could have been more effort in in highlighting women in the story? Yeah, 100%. I think that there's, like, one lady scientist, yeah. and she's actually, like, handling the material. And I'm like, who is she? I want to know mm-hmm. her. Well, mm-hmm. Like, what's going on with her? Like, because, again, because I think one thing that is so fascinating to me about this history is, like, they're just messing around with stuff. They're, like, handling nuclear materials and like, what is what is the feeling of that? Who's doing that? Like, what what are the moments of of that tension? And I know that she at one point is like putting together the bomb, and I noticed that, and I was like, oh, there she goes, she's gone. Um, so, but again, you can't really like get into those moments because we're with Oppenheimer the whole time, 
So we're not really like given the chance to to know those people or or see their perspective because we're only with Oppenheimer. So he, I, I think it's just like the film writes itself into a corner, and we can't really get out of it, and we're committed to it. So there's just no real chance to to really see anything else or or experience those things in a way that maybe they could have been or should have been. Mm-hmm. Well, in the movie, and again, I think putting this from his perspective, it kind of checks out. But the guy was also a known womanizer. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the movie definitely does not reckon with that in any way. Yeah. Uh, and again, Oppenheimer as a person probably didn't either. So that's why it's like you said, it's like, well, it's a first person story about this guy. And if it wasn't a big deal to him, I guess it, should it be a big deal in the story? It's a fair question to ask. Um, yeah. Laurent, what's uh, what do you what do you th- what's your take on this? Yeah, it's um, two minds too because, like you said, the actresses are so good in this. I mean, I mentioned some of my favorite performances, and it came from Emily Blunt. There was a there was like a, a need for me to see a little bit more of her, but I think that they did capitalize in those abbreviated yeah. moments with what you know what I mean. And that's that could be the actress more than the material. You know, I don't know, um, but I think that. Um, also true to life, I think they didn't have as much agency or as much, you know, at this period of time. So it would have felt probably disingenuous to have given it, you know, to have them have all this autonomy and all this, you know, in that in that time frame, just because it didn't, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't there, you know, at this time. And so, um, so I wonder, you know, very similarly to how like we we are critiquing the film for. Um, what they omit and what's not there and you know like it, all those things could kind of be intentional as well because again it's from this this perspective we don't want to you know um, romanticize something that didn't happen you know what I mean like and say like oh yeah she had this great you know um, uh, you know voice in this and she was influential in this way but what I think the way I would have reframed that is that we did see that she had very um, had such an impact on him personally as his wife. And I think that that is definitely that definitely comes across. But I think that's where they probably could have found an avenue. Maybe we have more conversations with her dealing with that emotional toll of him throughout the process. We see how she's affected from it from a very like passive, like peripheral view where um, she's drinking a lot. They're having a lot. You know, they're, they're not they're not happy all the time, you know. Um, but there's a moment at the end when he's like waiting on her to come in and you know, he was like, you don't understand this woman. We're waiting on her that she's been here through every hard moment for me. We could have seen a little bit more of those moments, maybe, you know, and that would have given her character maybe a little bit more heft. But I think there's enough um, revealed, um, you know, briefly in the scenes that she's in, because she's definitely able to um, radiate some gravitas in those moments. Oh, yeah. Every time she's on the screen, it, 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 the energy is different. But sure. of a general overarching like no, this doesn't help. This doesn't help the cause that he, what, you know, his depiction of women. Because I just don't think he's very interested yeah, in their f- points of view, and that's problematic for sure. Yeah, yeah. Steve, anything you want to add about how the film handles uh, women? <laughs> no, I, mean, I think I think most of it's already been said. I mean, it, it is a struggle when, like we're saying, in the in the era of history that this was taking place women weren't, especially in scientific and military roles, they were considered insignificant. There wasn't a lot of, despite the fact that even like, you know, as I was listening to the book, American Prometheus, one of the first names that come up as they're like starting to set the scene of like how science progressed to the point like Marie Curie was come comes up really early on in those conversations. And like, so there are significant moments. So I think like the one I was saying, like Joseph, there's, we probably 
probably could have been better efforts taken. Um, but it's kind of like, in a weird way, it's kind of the same conversation where it happened about the, the um, depicting how this impacted Japan. Like it wasn't, if this is, if we're sitting here and thinking this is the film from Oppenheimer's perspective, he wasn't seeing that stuff. So why would it be introduced? He doesn't have, he didn't have that perspective. He's not a guy that was thinking about that. He was a womanizer, he, whatever. So we weren't seeing that. And even the, the infrequency of these characters on screen is probably directly correlated to the infrequency in which he interacted with them. Right. Like they were just there. I mean, there's, there's one, you know, the, the strangely, it's some most emotional scene, at least from Oppenheimer's perspective was, it was when he finds out that, um, Gene Tetlock has died mm-hmm. and he's losing it. And, but then Emily Blunt comes in and like kind of snaps him back into reality. And it's to me that I think that was like, it was a, it was a drop in the bucket of an attempt to try to show how significant, um, yeah. Kitty was to him that like, she was keeping him in a sense, focused on the mission and, right. and, and, and all that stuff. But at the same time, like, I feel like there could have been more. And there's even some, like a lot of unanswered stuff about Gene Tatlock's character. Like, I, I may have been, it was like 12 o'clock, one o'clock in the morning or whatever. But like, there's a, there's a moment where it's presented like she kills herself, but there's a moment where you see gloved hands shove yeah. her head under the water. And it's like, wait a minute. Are you trying to say that like, there, like, was this some secret government op to kill this woman that they found out was connected to Empire and were afraid maybe she was a Russian spy or something mm-hmm. illegal? Like, what was that? Or was that like just something that flashed through Oppenheimer's head as he was trying to rationalize what happened, how that could have come about? Like, oh, did somebody kill her? Oh, did she, oh, did I cause this? Oh, whatever. Um, but all that to say is like, it felt like even though the context of the, of the history and, and what society was at the time that like they alluded to significant things and it, you, Nolan could have made the choice to unfold that, unpack it a little bit more, give it a little more time, you know, and didn't. So like, I think they were significant roles. I think the actresses were absolutely amazing in them. I don't know if we got enough. I think we should have probably gotten more. I think it would have been more. Um, But at the end of the day, he made that thing. And I also, it's interesting to me, you talk about the R rating of it, like, I mean, is this movie I was thinking about? It, is it only R-rated because of the sex scene? It's like yeah, so, so. sex scene and more f bombs. <laughs> oh yeah, lots of f bombs. Yeah. yeah, which is kind of weird in a Christopher Nolan movie. It is kind of bizarre after we've been watching. It's a nice segue to the next topic. Like you know, we've been watching Christopher Nolan movies for like twenty years now, and they're all I think Insomnia's the last R he did. I think. I think you're right. So everything has been PG thirteen. One f bomb. And, and absolutely no sex like that, like Christopher Nolan in general, not only he, he's not even like pretending that sex is a thing in his movies. They just, <laughs> it's just not a part of the stories he's telling. And, I, and you know, I'm not I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because uh, it raises the question. Uh, hey, um, Gene Tatlock get is sort of like the 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 fling that Oppenheimer is having played by Florence Pugh. We get at two one sex scene, two nude scenes. Right. And they're like not insignificantly long. Um, yeah. Question: uh, Was it? I, always, I this is just my perspective. Is sex is a a storytelling tool that you deploy when you think it is going to enhance or underscore uh, a certain character's POV or perspective? So I wanted to ask you guys: Did you think it was used well here? And also, 
What was it like to watch a sex movie and a Christopher Nolan movie? Because I can tell you it felt exactly how I thought it would. <laughs> Meaning it's kind of cold. Uh, is this really happening? Wait, they're having se- He's reading. Wait, wait. So the, Christopher Nolan's idea of sex is the, the dude lays down. The woman <laughs> grabs a book off a shelf and she's like, read it to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it just is like, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think it's interesting, but it's just kind of funny because I was like, this would be what no one would, how he would put it in a movie, hmm. you know, I don't, what, open discussion at the table. What you guys think of this? I mean, go ahead, you go ahead. I was say that, that I, I think it was off recording that I said this and I alluded to like, I think the intention of, of Gene Tatlock, or at least the representation of that character was almost to kind of mirror the like sort of we've talked about this the addiction to the like idea of creating this and doing it and even in that moment right especially the fact that the thing he reads to her is the famous i have become death destroyer Mm -hmm. of worlds that it's almost in that moment like a little bit of a microcosm that she's the thing he can't he can't quite let go of Mm -hmm. he's enticed to go back to but maybe it's not the most healthy thing maybe it's not the best thing and it ultimately leads to that moment of of that same sort of revelation that oh Cause it's not long after that. I think that, or the next time he sees her that he's kind of like, we have to end this. We have to, like he's realized this is something he shouldn't be doing. And it's like, but you're not realizing that creating an atomic bomb is something you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> and ultimately you're leading to that same climax of like, I have become death destroyer of worlds. Like, so I think, I think that's what, that's what I pulled out of that is that that was the passion, the, the desire. Cause even in that moment, there's like, I guess they, they are having sex, but then like, I don't know, he, loses his virility and mm-hmm. they stop. And then suddenly it's that weirdness that she's bringing to the, to the situation and bringing that book off the shelf of something that he's like currently enthralled in and reading and mm-hmm. whatever that like entices him back into it. Um, I don't, but again, I don't know that that's the only thing I can think of as in the terms of like, like you're saying, like Nolan's never really included sex in the stories. In fact, I was, as I was rewatching Memento, I was, there's a scene where, He's in in bed with um yeah Carrie Ann Moss yeah Carrie Ann Moss's character yeah. and I actually was walking away from the movie and I'm like I actually have no idea if they actually had sex yeah. or not <laughs> yeah like, I think on. they did but I, it really leaves it super ambiguous like it, it's whatever I think there's one thing that Carrie Ann Moss's character says later that I'm kind of like oh okay there she is she said something and alludes back to it um so it. To, for it to be in there, I was like, this has to have some like deeper threading storytelling right. meaning than just showing that Oppenheimer was a womanizer. Right. I mean, it has to be leading to something else. And so that's. When they have that whole, the other scene, is, which is the nudes, not necessarily sexy, but nude scene where she's just like laying sprawled out, butt naked, like mm-hmm. and where he's having to tell her, I'm never going to see you again. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. Uh, Laurent or Joe, chime in. What did you guys think about the sex scene? <sighs> Uh, they were interesting, and I, I don't think they were completely like um, insignificant to the story. I, I do think that um, I don't think it was to get arousal or to, to be titillating or oh, degrading no. in any way. Yeah. Um, but I do. I wonder because what I I think it creates a stark juxtaposition between his dynamic with his wife and his in his in his role with this uh, this woman this particular woman and what they both represent for him you know different parts of his self you know and um and what they bring out of him you know because i think that um there's a there's a tension between him 
in, in Florence Pugh's character that's that's very different from the tension he has with his wife. Um, and how he how he seems to respect both of these women, but can't help but, you know what I mean, his impulses. Um, and I think that, uh, yeah, I think that it's, it's, it's interesting, particularly the scene, and I wonder for anyone here, like the scene in the actual deliberation, the room, yeah, well, that was that was that was uh, that, that was a, that was a little bit more f- like forward, you know, like the scenes with them in the rooms that like, I can just take as like, you know, OK, this was between them. But I couldn't tell if that was how he was feeling or if that was Kitty's perspective. It felt like it was Kitty's perspective, okay. but then that does yeah. not. But that doesn't really align with the POVs of the rest of the movie. Right. That's what I was going to say is like, that's the only one that I don't like because it to me doesn't necessarily make sense. Yeah. And I was going to ask if anyone remembered if that was like black and white or color. No, it's in color. It's in color. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's confusing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, it's a strange, extraneous scene. That, like, I mean, maybe like stylistically it's interesting. But, I mean, it was but impactful, but it, it, it just, when you think about it, you're like, well. Why are we seeing her, her react to that? It's the only time in the entire movie you and, see that. And that's the only time you're going to be in a woman's perspective. That's like. A little icky. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think yes, it's interesting as a as an artistic choice, and I don't know why he did it. Um, it's it's just kind of like not anything else that's in the film, so I don't really understand it. I don't know why it's there. Um, and again, I don't necessarily mind there being sex scenes in this film. Um, I think that maybe they could have been done a little differently. I do like Florence going to get the book and then bringing the book to him and that being sort of like the end of that scene. I don't know if we need the moments preceding that necessarily <laughs> um, because it is like, I don't know, it's not like none of it is like sexy. Right. None of right. it is like there were definitely some guys behind me though on my screening who were like, ooh, boobies. Um, Naturally. So that's what I mean by like the vibe of, of my screening. But um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I don't, I, yeah, I kind of, I'm kind of like meh about it, I guess, except for that boardroom scene because it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. So, uh, sounds like we're not totally sure it was necessary. That doesn't mean it's not interesting. And right. it may be, I mean, there's a case. To be made for it, I, I think like Stephen, you did a, that was a really good kind of underscored some of the themes and and then the other thing is there's like the imagery kind of related to what you were saying too like uh, this dude is literally reading I am become death destroy of worlds as they're technically procreating with you know the idea of like life and death kind of there's something there sure um, so. There's a case. I think I think Stevens made the best case yet. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you threw him a lifeline. <laughs> <laughs> it was legitimately a scene that even as I was watching, like, what is what exactly is that? Because I I didn't know. I mean, that's pretty early on, and like I I was like, well, I know it's not his wife because I've seen that in the trailer. You know, I've seen uh, yeah Emily Blunt's well, character. Well, because so. first you start with him like he's there, and then he's naked. And I was like, oh, are they saying like he feels exposed or he feels like. You know, he's he's being seen for the first time. But then you when you add her into the sequence, then it becomes then that argument kind of gets it has a hole in it a little bit. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. But. Well, uh, listeners can feel free if they want to talk about their sex opinions on this show. You can email <laughs> us at thecinematropolis.com or uh, hit us up on social media. That's right. We're on Facebook, Twitter and threads, threads and Instagram. Hey, everyone. Uh, man. 
you know, we were trad this early in this podcast. I was like, we're going to end on time. And then, and then we got to spoilers. So this went really long. Thank you all so much for taking a considerable chunk of your time out of the Sunday uh, to talk about Oppenheimer. I want to make sure the listeners can keep up with you and all the things you're doing either online and in our community. Uh, so Steven Tyler, thank you so much. Uh, congrats for being on the, uh, thank you for joining us for the first time on the show. Uh, where can people follow you online? Um, all the things I'm, I'm at, uh, Steven Tyler with no E's S T P H N T Y L R, whether that's Twitter, Instagram threads, Facebook, whatever. That's the best way to go. Awesome. Check it out. Um, and of course you're, uh, yeah, if you're an Oklahoma City listener, uh, you own the Bunker Club. You guys yep. have some amazing programming that you just announced recently. Yeah, I mean, if you're especially if you're listening to this and are an Oppenheimer fam, I mean, it's a Bunker Club is described as an atomic age high dive. Uh, it's a little bit more on the Russian theme of it, but uh, a lot of vibes, great cocktails, amazing draft menu, programming every night of the week. Um, so come on out, bingo, trivia, all the fun pub stuff, plus you know. DJs and burlesque and, and all that kind of crazy stuff. So it's always a good time there. It's a nice little spot and it's rad. It's uh it's one of the bars, Bunker Club's one of the bars if someone who hasn't been into town before and I know they have a thing for like history, I'm almost like, yeah, we should drop by Bunker Club for, at least for one drink to get, yeah. get the vibe is just unreal. I, I love it. Uh Laurent Chapman, where can people follow you online? Uh you can follow my reviews on letterbox at black underscore Senna underscore man, or you can follow me on Facebook under my name, Laurent Chapman. Joe Light. Uh, I'm on threads and still Twitter, I guess, uh, at Joe underscore lightly. Um, I'm on Letterboxd at JoJo Swan. And, uh, of course, you can follow all the Cinematropolis things at all the social media I mentioned. Uh, you can follow me on uh Everything, Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, and I guess threads now. Uh, C Masters Talk. That's Letter C Masters Talk. Um, hey, hope you'll check it out. Uh, thanks so much for listening, uh, listeners. Make sure, again, if you're listening on Spotify, you vote in the poll. Which film did you like better, Barbie or Oppenheimer? Again, uh, results to be read uh, in our Ninja Turtles review in August. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, everyone. We'll catch you again next time when we go to the other half of Barbenheimer when we talk about Greta Gerwig's Barbie. 